You thought there'd be a tag at the beginning that would reveal who my secret guest was? <laughs> Aren't you cute? Gotham City, like any other large metropolis, abounds in girls of all shapes and sizes. Debutantes, nurses, stenographers, and librarians. Gotham City Library, Miss Gordon speaking. Lopez hair removal, this is Jose. Holy transformation. One minute, plain Barbara Gordon, librarian and Commissioner Gordon's daughter. And the next minute, something new has been added. Batgirl, modeled after her idol, Batman. Holy apparition! No, Boy Wonder, I'm Batgirl. You are no longer alone, Cape Crusader. It took me three years to track down the Jade Gato, and three more to figure out how to steal it. Funny, it only took me ten minutes to figure out how to snatch it back. No matter how you do it, crime doesn't pay girls. I'm your host, Stella, and this is Backroll to Oracle, the Barbara Gordon Podcast, episode 104 for August MMXV. Backroll to Oracle is brought to you by this public service announcement. I'm running away from home. My parents are mean. Where will you go? I'm not sure, but I'll show them. That's right. You'll show them how mean you can be. Bumblebee. Isn't it better to try to solve problems instead of running away from them? Maybe I could try talking to my parents again. Yeah, tell them how you feel. And remember, running away leads nowhere. Now I know. And knowing is half the battle. The Transformers! Backroll the Oracle is also brought to you by MileHighComics.com, your new and collectible comic book store. Mile High Comics has an inventory of over 5 million comics from the gold, silver, bronze, and modern age, and over 100,000 trade paperbacks. If you're not into the vintage stock, Mile High Comics also has a subscription service called the New Issue Comics Express, offering a discounted price for comics ready to hit the shelves. Examples of the prices you may encounter are November's Batgirl number 46 and Gotham Academy number 12, both for $2.69. So if you're looking for vintage back issues or a great modern subscription service, be sure to check out milehighcomics.com. Batgirl the Oracle is a proud member of the Batman Universe family of podcasts. Hashtag TBU family. I have an apology to make because uh, Shag Matthews actually did call me out on the previous episode and said, Hey, didn't you start the episode by saying this is going to be shorter than normal? And, in fact, I did, and I was thinking it'd be less than two hours, maybe an hour, but that was very wrong, and so I accidentally lied. So I apologize for accidentally lying. It turned out to be three and a half hours, <laughs> what with all the interview clips and 
stories and things like that. But hopefully it was still fun, even though it was a longer listen. But before I get to my special guest and my secret special guest, I have many, actually, messages from listeners like you. So it is time for some listener email. Mail time! Mail time! Mail time! Mail's here! Here's the mail, it never fails. It makes me want to wag my tail. When it comes, I want to wail. First up from Aaron Moss. I found your podcast due to the irredeemable shag. I've heard the Fire and Water podcast talk about your Backroll to Oracle podcast, but not having enough time in the day and not being a huge Backroll fan, I didn't bother looking for it. From the title, I assumed you were going to stop once Babs became Oracle. But then I heard Shag was going to be on the show, so I had to check it out. While looking at the past episodes, I noticed that this episode, covering the killing joke, and others dealing with Oracle and the Suicide Squad. Being a huge Suicide Squad fan, I've started my own podcast entitled Task Force X. I had to download these episodes also to see what your thoughts were on this. I know I'm coming at this a little late, but seeing how I just found your podcast, here are my comments regarding the killing joke episode. I loved this comic when I first read it. I read it within a year of it coming out. I didn't start getting comics until 1987 or so. I'm a comic late bloomer. I read it recently for my Head Speaks podcast, my other podcast I do, and I still loved it. Personally, I thought Batman was very in character throughout the story. I enjoyed the Joker origin, and while I empathize with, quote, Jack Napier, end quote, it doesn't change how I felt about the Joker. Regarding Gordon not sitting in his living room holding his gun when Joker came in, I'm not a cop, so I can't speak with authority, but I'm sure when they get home, they put their gun away. I checked with a cousin, who is a sheriff, and he did confirm that yes, when they get home, they put their gun away, at least up, if not in a gun safe. And as you were trying to think how Joker found Gordon's house, which again isn't too hard, Gordon probably didn't think that the Joker would come gunning for him directly. I don't think he ever did until this point. So him not having his gun on him is very in character, in my opinion. As far as comments you made about did the story need to go as far as having Babs and Gordon stripped down and Gordon having to go through the house of fun, my answer to that, to misquote Back to the Future, yes, definitely, god damn it, George. The Joker could have not went as far as he did, but that's the whole purpose of the story. To become the Joker, as your co-host said, it was a series of events in one day. His failure as a comedian, his pregnant wife dying, being forced to commit the burglary, falling into the chemicals, being scarred for life with the bleached skin and rictus. To try and cause Jim to go insane, he had to do as much bad crap as he could to Jim. Yes, Moore could have done other things, but then someone would have been opposed to it. He needed to go to the extreme to try and prove his point. Also, I thought Jim's reaction was very on point. While most people would have told Batman to kill the Joker or beat the living hell out of him, that's not James Gordon. He's a by-the-book cop and wants things done by the book, even if it's his own family involved. There is a point Jim is trying to make also. Regarding Batman and Bat's hospital room, again, for the time period, his douchery was very in character, as I'll state later on. So spoilers for my letter? Bruce Wayne is a damaged man. While he can function with others, I see him as being borderline insane. I call him a functional psychotic. I think he put the crumpled card in front of Babs just to see how she'll react and make sure she's fine with the ordeal. My problem with this issue and fans is that most people complain that it's masochistic and shows women in a bad light. People say she was sexually assaulted, but they ignore Gordon getting the same treatment without being shot but being forced to view his baby girl stripped naked and shot. 
Not saying that Babs wasn't sexually assaulted by being stripped, but if she was, so was Gordon. And seeing how they did it to both male and female, I don't see how this story is masochistic. Also, you made some comments that Batman was too gentle a Joker after what he did to Barbara and Jim. I think at this point, he would have been the same no matter who he did it to, even his Robins. I could be wrong, but when he starts to want the Joker dead was right after he beat and killed Jason. But I think one of the main pushing points for Batman was that not so long before that, he also crippled Babs and tortured Jim. I think if the killing joke had not happened, he might not have been so bloodthirsty during a death in the family. But as I said, I could be wrong. As far as the ending goes, I think it's in character for both Batman and the Joker. One thing that people tend to forget, Bruce is insane himself. He was traumatized as a little boy and instead of getting help and treated, he went off and found people to basically help nurture his insanity to become Batman. So I think both him and the Joker laughing at the end of the story is basically Moore's way of addressing the fact that both men are technically insane to different degrees. Bruce has more of a functional insanity. Also, I never saw Batman killing the Joker. I guess I could see that if it was outside of continuity, but at this point, it still seems out of character for Batman. One great thing that came out of this is Oracle, which in my opinion, DC has pissed away with the new 52. As far as recommending it to someone, I would, with a caveat that it destroys Batgirl, who is already dead, aka retired, and if you don't care for the nudity aspect of it, you may want to give it a skip. On to your coverage of the Suicide Squad books. I'm only up to the episode with the Janus Directive, haven't even started it yet, so if you got these answers or comments, feel free to ignore this part. Regarding Waller blowing a chip in their neck, originally, if you haven't covered this yet, the squad used bracelets that would blow the offender's wrist and hand off. Regarding the issue of Suicide Squad where Deadshot took out Senator Cray, I believe this was either issue 22 or 24. My own podcast is only on issue 4. If I remember correctly, haven't gotten to this point yet and reread it, Waller told him to stop Flag from killing Senator Cray. When it came down to it, Floyd figured the only way to stop Flag from killing the senator was doing it himself. And that's how Deadshot ended up killing Tolliver. And... BTO episode 88, this issue of Suicide Squad refers back to the first two issues of the title. Mine Bogor was on the original team and was killed in the first or second issue due to Captain Boomerang. And Jin was also a member of the Jihad in those first issues and was destroyed by the Suicide Squad. And then later on, Mine Bogor would become Ifrit, the new version of Jin. But if you're curious about these early missions of the Suicide Squad, check out my podcast, Task Force X, which is on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, and at my website, headspeaks.com, where I plan on covering every appearance of the Suicide Squad and checkmate. So thank you, Aaron. Long email, but I really appreciate all your details. Let me first thank you for just adding in your expertise on Suicide Squad. Obviously, I came in at a weird moment, skipping lots of history because I am just focusing on Babs and her appearance and how she's affecting the squad or vice versa. So I come into a status quo that's already intact and I miss the history and the origin of of everything. So I think I'm doing a little bit better now because I've had some continuity as I get into the higher issue numbers. But things in the past, you know, I I still don't have as great a handle on it. So I'm very appreciative that, that you're there with your podcast so that hopefully if people are, you know, interested in these stories that I'm recapping, that they go over to your website and your podcast and listen to that to get more detailed exploration of the adventures of the Suicide Squad. 
And as for, yeah, the, all the killing joke stuff, I really appreciate you sending me your thoughts and opinions on all of that. Now, you know, as, as you may well know, since I have my episode up there, I may disagree with some of them. And, and I still argue about the uh, Joker finding finding Jim in his apartment situation. I, I It was even brought up this year at San Diego Comic-Con with Don and Josh. And I can reason through it now a little bit more. I still have a problem with it, and, and I think I will continue to have problems with that particular story, but you certainly do make a lot of good points. And I, I understand about the male-female aspect of it, and you bring up a good point of that. It's just hard to uh, see that sort of stuff happen to your favorite character, which is why that will always bother me. And, you know, now it will be an animated feature. So... Uh, yeah, I, I wonder how that will be or what how they will choose to portray those details. But I wanted to at least put a trailer for Aaron's show, his Task Force X show. So listen to that now and uh, go check that out. secret governmental organization operating behind the scenes. Task Force X. Task Force X is an off-the-books government strike team made up of convicts with no hope for release, serving as expendable agents for impossible missions. Succeed, and I'll shave time off your sentences. If we don't. You'll be dead. Any other stupid questions? The Suicide Squad, ran by Amanda Waller. I'm Amanda Waller. I'm here to indoctrinate you convicts into our special forces. And there's Checkmate, ran by Harry Stein. This is the tales of DC Comics, Suicide Squad, and Checkmate. Mostly monthly from Headspeaks. Available on iTunes under Task Force X and under Headcasts over at headspeaks.com. We can also be found on Facebook and Google Plus under Task Force X. Task Force X. Check it out, or you'll answer to the wall. Nobody screws the wall! Next up, from... Michael Ridge, he says, Salway Stella, congratulations on getting episodes into triple digits. I'm continuing to look forward to new episodes. Two things stuck out for me in episode 102. First, I'm responding to email comments that you fell into the irredeemable shag sphere of influence. I think you had more success in drawing him into your orbit. I've heard shag on many different podcasts with a lot of hosts. You are the first one to bring out his feelings about current comics and his daughter. He may claim to have difficulty getting in touch with his feminine side, but he clearly has no problem contacting his fatherly side. While Shag is always interesting, your style brought out more of the person than other hosts, so none of his three guest episodes is too long. Second, you said you were uncomfortable with the new video game that puts Robin and Batgirl together. The reason for your discomfort sort of parallels mine with Dick and Babs as a couple. Oh no, say it ain't so. 
My first experience with Batgirl was the 1966 Million Dollar Debut. Continuity didn't exist then, but characters did have a backstory. Barbara Gordon had one that was suitable for a Batman love interest out of high school by 15, graduated from college at 18, doctorate and library masters by 22 or 23, half a dozen years experience and she is ready to return to Gotham Public Library as the head of a department. That made her about 30 years old, Yvonne Craig's age, when she first appeared. Robin was supposed to be 15 years old. See Mike's amazing oh no oh there he is again see mike's amazing world for superhero ages uh so robin was probably in middle school or just starting high school later when robin and Batgirl clicked with the public editorial made dick as old as they could still teen titan and took at least 10 years off barbara's age might have taken more if she wasn't in congress but i still saw a public official canoodling with the kid who had a crush on her michael are you the one who wrote that letter in uh batman family number one that complained about the kiss between these two. In current continuity, all Barbara's pre-paralysis adventures took place before she was 18, and all three or whatever Robins have to fit the five-year time frame. So all the Robins are close to Barbara's age. She could reasonably end up with any of the former Robins. Do you think Grayson is now supposed to be older than the Burnside Batgirl? Your problem is the same as mine. You fall in love with a character that isn't around anymore, a Batgirl that never was. Sorry to go on for so long. Keep up the good work on the growth of Oracle as a character. Fly on, Michael. Huh. That's interesting. I'm trying to... When you say close to... all oh, the Robins are close to Barbara's age. I feel like... I, I do wonder what your definition of close is because Damien... I mean, he's still, I would say, 12, 13. Like, basically, if he were taking Latin and went to the school I teach at, I would be teaching that little guy. So, <laughs> which would be kind of cool slash scary. So, I, I, I do wonder about that. And Tim Drake is probably, I would say, he probably just turned Sweet 16, though I don't read the Titans comic and current continuity. As for Grayson, I do, I do actually wonder and think about that. And I think perhaps he actually is older than Babs is. I think that it switched. And, I mean, he was probably operating with Batman before she appeared on the scene. Yeah, I and, you know, this current continuity is sort of whacked out. I don't know if anyone really has a... We talk about this five-year time frame that that everything sort of went together and i think there's even something that has gone around but but i i don't think things really fit together as well as dc thinks they fit together so we can only just guess but she was certainly dh slightly there's a, i mean this new creative team there was certainly a soft reboot i think to to fix that so she is definitely younger that's kind of funny though that my i don't want Backroll to be I don't want Barbara Gordon to be with Tim Drake because I think that's weird even in video game continuity just because I think about her in pre-flashpoint continuity that she was very much a mentor to him and Cassandra so that's super weird like Cassandra's almost her daughter and it's a very motherly daughterly relationship they have so to have Tim that's weird and it's almost like the cast your mom is so hot situation which oh. and i don't think that barbara should be romantically entangled with bruce wayne either which is one of the things i disagree with in uh, mystery of the batwoman when they went that direction and in sort of the the post-crisis continuity that she she had a crush on batman i don't think it was ever 
I really, I, I just can't see it as being a romantic thing, but I think it was very much admiration. I think she had admiration for her father and what he did, and she had admiration for Batman and being similar to her father, uh, but being on sort of a different side of the law. And so I just don't, I think it'd be weird to be like her having a crush on her father, uh, you know? And yeah, so I, I don't, uh, I, I can't follow that, I'm afraid. I think it's it's a little too weird for me. But anyways, so I'm sorry. That's really funny, though. You've saved, you've written to me so many times, Michael, and you've saved it until this moment to say that you are uh, not a Dick and Babs fan. So, but that's okay. I still appreciate you. Next up is Ian Miller. He says, Dear Sella, just listened to your wrap-up for the Convergence miniseries and enjoyed both your reviews. I'm curious who you thought the wedding guests and maids of honor were in the Nightwing Oracle wedding. I agree that Quitney's writing for the Batgirl miniseries was more than a bit messy, but I don't think that the ending is only the world may end, so let's comfort each other. Steph says that rushing is good because of the possible end of the world, but her last words, I don't want my city to be destroyed, I want to live, but if it all has to end, then let part of me wish it could end right here, seem to indicate that there is more than just seeking small comfort in the face of doom. Additionally, Though the chronologically displaced timeline does distract from their impact, I think Whitney does a really nice job layering in the Tin Steph relationship all throughout the miniseries, from the beautiful flashback to spoiler days and Steph's musings that I was a match for Tim, to Tim protecting her as a nurse, to the hilariously inappropriately timed hug and argument, it seems to me that there was more than just fear and relief. Your points about world building and mechanics of the Convergence event being completely incoherent are spot on, and I think largely to blame for the overall kind of meh quality of all the issues, except for the question, despite my disappointment with the treatment of Huntress in that miniseries, but Rucka provided one heck of a two-parter there. While Quitney wasn't my ideal choice for Steph, I'd read a few of her other works before and they were okay, but not my favorite, I think she did a decent job within the constraints of a very silly event, and I was really happy to see my Steph back as much as I enjoy new 52 stuff. Keep flying. Well, thanks, Ian. I totally get where you're coming from. You know, it's been a little while since I've read those issues. And as you know, I was displeased with those compared to the Nightwing Oracle. But you do bring up good points. And, and I think your view about what Steph was saying there and in that situation means and of course all the history that was layered in, as you said, does point to the fact that there are feelings there. They're not just seeking comfort. It just seemed like it was convenient that the world's going to end and, and, you know, they're going to hook up. So that was just my, I guess, knee-jerk reaction. It reminds me, there was that movie with uh, Steve Carell and Keira Knightley seeking seeking a friend, I think. is seeking a friend or seeking a companion for the end of the world. And I mean, it's not like there are want ads or anything out, but these two people find each other in this weird, like, apocalypse, apocalyptic world situation, and uh, just how that unfolds is, is very nice, but it's certainly not, you know, I'm looking for um, just a hookup for the end of the world, but just explores that relationship, so it sort of reminds me of that. As for your other question, because I, I don't, uh, I completely agree with you on Convergence, that the event itself, I think, was a bit of a letdown, or mediocre but everything I think if you really want to enjoy it you had to read those tie-ins and the tie-ins were hit or miss honestly and it depended on who was writing and how much knowledge they had as for the wedding I would definitely say you know in an ideal world 
Oracle for her bridesmaids, I think, would have the birds of prey with her. Uh, no misfit. But, you know, Dinah would definitely be her maid of honor, I guess matron of honor, depending on whether or not she had married Ollie. And Dick, I feel like Bruce would be up there with him. And Tim. And... Damien like honestly you know it sounds like a cliche like why have those people but he is super close to all three of those and I I could see Huntress being up there with Babs so that'd be a little awkward because she of course hooked up with Dick but definitely Dinah would be up there and I think Cassandra would be a nice a nice uh, connection and staff because I mean she was on her team so Huntress is maybe a little bit iffy but Dinah is definitely first and foremost and then I think she would have Babs would have her uh, her protégés, and then her father, of course, would lead her down the aisle, which would just be wonderful. Oh, it brings tears to my eyes to think about the actual wedding. Uh, that'd be wonderful. Well, thanks for writing in, Ian. And next up, we have uh, two from Doug. First of all, he says, on the subject of Batgirl shooting herself in Arkham Knight, which I talked about in the previous episode, I do not own a PS4, so I haven't played the game or read any spoilers. You said that you didn't think that Barbara would shoot herself. When somebody goes through a traumatic experience such as what happens to Barbara in The Killing Joke, the PTSD of the event can make people do things that you wouldn't think they would normally do. The psychological and emotional event that causes a person to suffer from PTSD can dramatically change their personality. While I agree that she would fight to the bitter end, never take a person's psychological problems for granted. Also, do you think the events in The Killing Joke made Barbara a better, stronger person? Sorry if you've covered this before. Thanks for being a good role model for girls who want to experience superheroes and comics and keep up your stellar work. Well, thank you, Doug. Uh, That perhaps is one of the uh, best compliments I could get because I'm certainly trying to pave the way there, you know, in the podcasting world. And uh, hopefully I'm getting girls into comics and podcasting and everything. Thanks for that on uh, PTSD. I uh, I guess I sort of argued around it. Uh, and it's something that when the new 52 Batgirl run began and she kept bringing this idea up that she had PTSD and was still suffering from it and it was written in that way, it just didn't seem authentic the way that it was dealt with. And I guess, I mean, honestly, I would have to do, I feel like, more research or perhaps, which would be interesting, perhaps talk to actual people with PTSD and, and get an idea of what it's like to deal with that every day and, and see if it sort of jives with how she was betrayed in, in, the, uh, in the beginning of that run. And I guess I just think that even though, you know, even though she would have that, there'd be some like little bit of her still left that she would not try to kill herself. But I guess if she saw that there was no other way, because I don't know what else she was thinking, because uh, I, I I'm told that she sees something coming towards her. It's actually Batman, but she may have envisioned something else. So is there really no other way? And then you do bring up a, a good point that we don't know what she's going through. Honestly, we don't know what she's thinking. Do I think the events in The Killing Joke made Barbara a better, stronger person? This is, I don't know if I've dealt with this before. I think perhaps I've danced around it in certain degrees, which is a little funny, isn't it? You, you think that it would, I would have talked about it sooner. I think that the way it was left, if I were to cut Barbara's history right there, I think that um, she was severely damaged in that moment. So if her story would have ended there, that hospital, and then she 
just sort of went on living in oblivion and we didn't really know what her history was, I would say no. I think the only reason that the answer is yes is because her history continued because of John Ostrander and Kim Yeo who took this person that was damaged and really helped her to grow. And I think we see a little bit in um, the upcoming issues of Suicide Squad uh, that, that I'm going to cover in this episode, that is, that she really has changed and uh, she's no longer, you know, the back girl that, you know, is trying to almost fit in, be with the boys and is turned down left and right and no longer the person that I think second guesses herself. So she does really change dramatically, though there are moments uh, that she certainly has self-loathing, especially in the, the Birds of Prey run. So in in that case, you know, she's not completely over the fact that she's she's in a wheelchair. I'm not sure if that makes you a stronger person or not, you know, uh, wanting to change yourself or would it be stronger to be resigned like this is this is who I am now so I need to be accepting of it. But there are moments when she's just like, you know, I'm in this chair, I can't do anything about it and m- more often than not she's talking to Dick about it and he's usually the one that tries to comfort her. But I I would absolutely say that it does make her a a stronger person. I think she's just more adult. It's really changed her that experience as it would for anyone. And I think her relationships with people really changed as well. For the better and for the worse because she lies to her father who's really her uncle currently I guess. She lies to Jim Gordon a little more often and and she's not as open. Her relationship with Batman is is a little distanced, so the better is is a bitter a, a bit of a. It depends on what you mean by better, I suppose. Uh, but stronger person, I would I would definitely say yes. And then Doug wrote in again because if you've been paying attention to the interwebs, and I wasn't, it's only that people who think of me and either text me or Facebook me or uh, tweet me. That uh, the rumor online, and this is from Doug, the rumor online is that Jenna Malone will be portraying Barbara Gordon. Excellent, right? I have the same questions about her role as you do. Will she be Batgirl, Oracle, Mayor? Where's Jim Gordon? In the movie, Bruce slash Batman is supposed to be around 45 years old. Since Batman in comics is typically 27-ish, this would indeed make this more of a Batman from The Dark Knight Returns. It, however, raises questions about where the supporting Bat family cast fits in. This is one of the main problems I have with the DC Cinematic Universe. With the MCU, they have shown the creation of the heroes and then move forward. But the DCCU is having the new hero of Superman with an old Batman. To me, it seems like they are limiting themselves on how long they could keep a Justice League franchise going. This may be more of a question for the comic cast. I literally lose sleep over these issues. Hashtag geek problems. Yes, so if you are not familiar with Jenna Malone. She was Johanna Mason in The Hunger Games, Mockingjay, as well as Catching Fire. She was Lydia Bennett in Pride and Prejudice with Kira Knightley as Elizabeth. And she was in Stepmom, and I can't remember if she was the daughter or not, but those are just some of the films that she's been in. I actually remember her in sort of a made-for-TV movie called Bastard Out of Carolina, and I remember a very uh, particular violent scene with her, which was disturbing. 
but I'm actually excited about this news. I like Jenna Malone, so I have no problems with that casting whatsoever. You know, whether she'll be walking or rolling, as I as I told somebody else, I honestly don't know. Because it's her first introduction, I feel like it'd be good to have her walking if they like plan to continue this on but the 45 year old thing business means she actually may be potentially in a wheelchair which could actually be very exciting would that be the first well besides professor xavier of course would that be the first handicapped heroine that we would have on a heroic uh stage uh so that would be really exciting but I honestly think that she won't have any code name. I feel like she will be Barbara Gordon, and either this or something else would be the catalyst to give her some sort of code name. I, I wonder, you know, is she, I mean, how big is her role, really? We haven't heard anything about Jim Gordon. How can you have Barbara Gordon not have Jim Gordon in there? Though if, if Bruce is 45 in The Dark Knight Returns, Jim was about ready to retire. So I don't know where, where they are with this timeline here. Is she just going to be an assistant, do you think, working at Wayne Enterprises with with Bruce Wayne? I, I don't know. But I, I feel like she's not going to be working with Batman. I think that Batman in this particular film is going to be very, very solo against Superman. I mean, Alfred may be there, but I, I feel like he's not going to have a team as as he has in the past. So my guess right now is she's just going to be Barbara Gordon and potentially with this timeline, potentially she's in a wheelchair, but I wouldn't be surprised if she was walking. It's it's interesting you talk up you you mentioned cinematic universe, I, which I'm actually a little when I was reading that I thought oh I'm a little shocked that they're going in this direction. And I guess you're absolutely right because you know Marvel talks about that cinematic universe that everything's tied together, but it really seems like Man of Steel, like this is the movie. Batman vs. Superman, that is beginning the cinematic universe, if if that's where they want to go. And the timeline seems really off, and I almost wish it was, again, standalone. My problem with this movie in general is that there are too many things going on. All of these people that they, like, keep saying or well i have that problem with captain america 3 as well just these characters that they're throwing in there i just want a superman franchise by itself and then you know build off of that but batman's gonna be in suicide squad it's gonna be ben affleck so i guess it really is a cinematic universe but you're absolutely right that the timeline's a little messed up and i don't know how they can do that with the exception of potentially killing off Bruce Wayne in a future movie, in a future Justice League or something, depending on the threat level, if they do Darkseid or something like that, and bringing on a younger protege. Who knows? Uh, wouldn't that be interesting if they killed off Ben Affleck's Bruce Wayne in a future Justice League? Let's say, like, Justice League 2, and Barbara Gordon has already been established because they've done maybe one bruce wayne film and she is the one they ended up doing a batgirl sidekick instead of robin and then she's the one to take on the the cowl the cape and the cowl batman how awesome would that be people would probably hate that because when does that happen but i mean that would be just great to do something completely different and have a strong female character become batman it wouldn't be batwoman but it'd be i think that'd be sweet uh so thanks doug for writing in and I think my last email 
is from Michael Delosier. He says, hello, Stella. I'm currently listening to your SEC wrap-up episode. It probably took him weeks or days. And wanted to comment on the Killing Joke animated movie that DC is producing. I just hope they give it an R rating so we can see Barbara naked. What the f***? If your jaw drop, my mission is accomplished. Just to assure you, I do not want them to show that, and frankly don't think that the movie needs to be made in the first place. I just had to have a little fun at your expense, since I know you are opposed to the movie being made. I will try to write an email that is actually podcast appropriate, although Shag might see no problem with this email, later this week. Again, I apologize. I just couldn't pass it up when that twisted scenario popped into my head. Keep up the good fight, and thank you for all you do, us Babs fans. Michael. Well, Michael... You are on the blacklist now. I've set iTunes so that it no, you can no longer subscribe to my show. And you're blocked from my email. So happy day. No, I'm just kidding, Michael. Of course, yes. That did make my jaw drop. And, and my response to his email was, ah, basically with all caps. And that's all I said. Well, thanks. That was probably the most that I had of, of writer's ins. And I am going to move on and introduce my very special secret guest that has been hidden behind the curtain this entire time. Hello from Starbucks, actually. This is going to be a super exciting experiment. And depending on how bad we are or how awesome it goes, I may just leave it completely raw and not edit it. But for weeks, months maybe, I've been teasing this secret guest. And even someone emailed in and said, when you have Shag on next weekend, be sure to say da-da-da. It's not Shag. So I can finally, finally reveal that Oracle is really... Tom Panarese and Tom Panarese is on my show right now and we're here together at Starbucks so hello and welcome back Tom I hope your audience isn't let down but it's just me <laughs> they've had yeah. enough of Shag I think you know two times or three oh. <laughs> he is semi-regular co-host my semi-irregular yeah irregular yeah you know he he uh it's a need that the show the show sometimes has and then I think that you fit in a very special need as well and it's been a while. We did our Halloween one together, right? We did. We did a Scooby-Doo one and I think that was the, that was, and then we had our done second one, yeah. Yeah, and then we had done um, a proper episode at some point. Uh, <laughs> and I can't remember what issue it was. Um because uh, we have, you and I have talked on my show several times, right? Over, and and so I can't remember when we got together and recorded, and when we got together and didn't record. So. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, as all friendships should be. Well, yes. one of the the reasons why I wanted to bring you on here is because I feel like there may be some things that you want to get off your chest about. You know, Shag coming on and things Shag has said, and maybe things I have said, and I just don't want you to, to keep bottling up inside. Well, I just I was I was listening to, um, and I don't remember which episodes he was on. It was 99, 101, or whatever. <laughs> and he's like throwing me. You're throwing me under the bus repeatedly uh, over Corey. 
Um, and and I just I found it hilarious because I just you know I feel like should I come on to defend myself? You know I mean here you've got um, I realize that you're not a big fan of the relationship of those two characters, which I understand. And but at the same time, um, you're you're in a period in, in Suicide Squad and Batman where he's still in the Titans and he's still with her. Um, and then, and, and we're only a couple of years away from that uh, wedding issue. Okay. I think it's one of Don's favorites, actually. The you have wedding to ask issue. Yeah. The wedding issue. New Titans 100. It's not one of Mar Wolfman's favorites. No, 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 no. And um, and that's where it kind of goes south. And then right around the time um, of Zero Hour, they officially break up, and he. I think within the next six months to a year, gets his first miniseries, and then he's in the ongoing series with Chuck Dixon. So, and um, behind the scenes, it's all that uh, you know. Wolfman had that character since about 1980, essentially, and in '94, this is him giving it back to to the Bat Books. So Denny O'Neill takes it. And then Chuck Dixon kind of runs with the character and stuff, and he's the one who puts together the relationship relationship between the two of them. That eventually kind of gets retconned into the, all the various uh, annual specials, miniseries, and stuff. But um, as I, I've, I've said before, and I'll say again, you can't have the Dick and Babs relationship without Dick having the disastrous relationship with Corey first. It's this, like, Corey's his angst relationship. Um, did you read Convergence, the new Teen Titans? I didn't. I saw, you know, a particular panel that was shoved in my face on Facebook. That was about all I needed to see. Hmm. Oh, no, he's, he's reaching into his bag and he's pulling something out. This is... This is. <laughs> That one? Oh my gosh. <laughs> and that other one where she's claiming ownership of him by like putting her, well, her hand on his They're butt. married in the in that yeah. two-parter. And the whole thing goes back to like if you're not familiar with the time it's taking place, it goes back to the whole she's a warrior, can she kill, can she not kill type of um, thing that that was going on with her and it's been 30 years since those stories, so if you know the character now, or you know the character as we knew him in the 90s and 2000s, it seems like a totally different character. You forget that when Wolfman had him, he was still in that sort of whiny, teen angst, late teens, early 20s angst phase that he finally gets out of at the end of that run of the Titans, and then you know, he's a lot more confident when Chuck Dixon's writing him. So, I mean, are you saying that what Shag and I say about you and, and Starfire is unjustified? Yeah. <laughs> I just think you're not giving enough credit. Um, because because um, she she's the she's the relationship that he kind of had to get through to have the more mature relationship. And um, he keeps, like, certain writers are obsessed with the fact that you know they could hook back up at a moment's notice and and at his weaker times he's done that because she's the old flame almost literally because it's her powers and everything but at the same time it's in some cases that works and in some cases just lazy writing on the part of say judd winnick or somebody who like almost immediately in his run on the titans it's like oh they're gonna sleep together and you're like no that didn't work. So, and, and when you hit 
that era of Infinite Crisis. And you hit Nightwing Annual too. And yes. Hit, yeah, we'll we'll have to talk again because there there's an yeah. issue of the Outsiders that you need to read. That goes along with it, but doesn't really go along with it in continuity. It. Let's just say it's that reversal. You it's were yeah, because right? in Nightwing Annual two, he he's with Barbara, and then he gives her the wedding invitation or whatever, and and. Um, that was, and then she kicks him out and everything. Um, and then he proposed to her right before, and it was like right after he proposed to Corey, because the, the wedding in, in New Titans number 9900 is like, takes place like right away. And everybody around them says, this is going too fast, what are you doing? And it's his like, one thing, he's like, I, I can keep control over this. And, and that's the whole reason he wants to get married. He, feel like he, he feels like he's just in control of everything in his life. And this is one thing he can like control, which sounds like a horrible reason to marry somebody. And it is. And they, they you know, they break up as a result of everything, you know, aside from the fact that Raven fries the priest. But, you know, it's... It's a, it is a nightmare. But you know, he sleeps with Barbara right before, you know, right. and um, he had proposed to her right before going off in Infinite Crisis to what originally was planned for his death, but then that was reversed. Um, in The Outsiders, I don't know the issue number, I have to look for it. He sleeps with Corey right before Corey goes off into space for because Donna Troy puts that expedition together. And through like all of 52, Corey's lost in space with Animal Man and stuff. Like the night before he leaves, he, he and Corey sleep together and then he proposes to the barber. So it's almost like a complete reverse of the situation you see in that Nightwing annual. I don't know if that was deliberate or not. So it would have been interesting to see if it is. But yes, you, you need his relationship with Corey okay. to have the relationship with Barbara. And, and aside from just annoying you about it, yeah, I, I don't really need to mention it ever again. <laughs> Maybe I'm just one of those people that when I'm with one certain person, uh -huh. uh, I'm like totally on their side oh, and ragging on someone else. It's not your else. fault. And it's, then Shag's. it's Shag's fault. Okay. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I, I, yeah, I argue that he's a, like a bad influence. Well, the, the funny thing was, um, I was listening to <laughs> Professor Allen's short box showcase this morning, and they did a Convergence special, and uh, they talked about how much they liked the Dick and Babs relationship, mm. and they referred to themselves as being on Team Stella, <gasps> but then they said it's opposed to Team Shag, so oh, they kind of got it wrong. Oh, that, that was as opposed <laughs> to, I'm surprised they, to team yeah. so I, but yeah, so they, they are very Stella. nice. Should make t-shirts, Team Stella. Stella Team Tom, yeah. <laughs> and then on the back it's got some sort of picture. <laughs> so yeah, so, but you know, so when Shag invites himself on again, yeah, you can, it's, it'll happen. You I'm can sure. respond, yeah. Okay, yeah. sounds good. You also wanted to clear the air in some of the Teen Titans references that were made in Hawk and Dove because Shag and I, well, I had less knowledge than Shag did, but we were trying to figure out why Hawk was, he was trying to figure out what was going on with the Titans. There were just moments that showed up in those issues. Of, and then even bad saying that there was okay. some sort of catastrophe. So I was looking at the, um, I was looking at Mike's Amazing World of Comics, which we all reference. That guy, who and, is he? And uh, Mike had noted that, um, I was looking at what books were on sale and at the same time as the Hawk and Dove issues, and it was around Titan 71 through 75. 
which is exactly when I started reading that book. And it's called the, it's a storyline called The Titans Hunt. And in, at the end of 71, um, all of the Titans seem to have been captured by the wildebeest. Okay. And at the very end of the issue, Steve Dayton has hired Deathstroke to find them. And then the entire, from 72 to 75, is the storyline where the Titans are missing and Deathstroke's looking for him. And at the end of 75, the, we discover that A, Dick Grayson is, um, was never captured. He, he, he overtook the wildebeest that had tried to capture him and was disguising himself as one. And being the leader of the wildebeests is Jericho who has his voice back. Oh. And there's this whole storyline that ends in issue 84 that um, involves Raven and I recapped it on my blog years ago. In 76, Titan's Tower is destroyed. So when they're referencing, like nobody seems to know where the Titans are and there's problems with their um, systems and stuff, it's because all of this stuff is happening. Okay. It's a total disaster. Okay. And then with the Armageddon 2001 thing, I have the Titans companion. That two oh, wow. And there's an interview with Jonathan Peterson in there who was the editor of the New Titans and was one of the editors on the Armageddon 2001 crossover. And he, um, he's talking about how the Teen Titans came out of that because the ad, the New Titans annual was this new, this Teen Titans fighting this other dictator in the future and a future version of Dick Grayson and, and blah blah blah. Um, underrated idea in my opinion, but I'm sure that Shag was something to say to that. Um, he says that someone did leak the conclusion of Armageddon, that it was Captain Adam. And, he, and so um, he says, one day I was at lunch with Dick and Jerry Ordway, and I had this idea, what if we change the ending? And then he um, he said, uh, Hawk was this warlike guy anyway. He said, we could do an Anakin Skywalker thing. Hawk was this warlike guy anyway. You push him off the deep end, bring him to the dark side. That would be the tragedy that Wave Rider's interference would ultimately be the event to cause Hawk's transformation. Um, he was a B-level character we could do something with, so Hawk was available yeah. to do it. And, and it was kind of a bummer. It was like they didn't trust the fans enough to just go with the story and allow them to enjoy the real story. They, they were too focused on their gimmick, and I think it hurt the ending of the story, especially since... Um, I thought the Hawk and Dove annual where he looks at three separate futures. One of them is Hawks, one of them is Doves, and then he looks at them together. And the together one is, and there's no indication in that annual that it's going to be Hank Hall because they didn't, you know, they obviously weren't leading toward that. But yeah, they had a child who took the name Unity. And I thought that was seeding something there that, like, that was going to come into the conclusion in Armageddon 2001 or 2, but it never happened. It would have been a cool idea, though. How did it leak? Did it say how that happened? No, I don't know. It, it was at a convention like or something. It just, yeah, I know. It just it got out. And perhaps somebody found out at a convention and, had, and mentioned it somewhere. But yeah, someone in the press or whatever got a hold of it, or the comics press got a hold of it. So. Yeah, that's a bummer. It yeah. seems like. If you ever, if you have a good idea and you feel like this is a good idea and then it's ruined and then you just pick something else so that it's still a surprise, it seems like it's a, yeah. a bummer. 
Yeah. And it seemed like Hank paid the price <laughs> since all this crazy stuff that yes. happened to him. Uh, and then we also want to talk about Brittany Snow. Bethany right? Snow. Bethany Snow, that's right. All right, Bethany Snow, because and like... Because Richard Stoneless yeah. on 100 said, you know, she was just appearing in those little backups. She's a Wolfman Perez character. Okay. She made her first appearance... It was in the original Wolfman Perez run. I don't know what issue it was. It might have been 21, 22. It might have been a little later. She was a news banker. Uh, Barbara Walters type. Okay. Jane Pauley type. Um, an 80s woman news anchor. Who was also a member of Brother Blood's cult. So she was almost like his propaganda. And and he one of the things that, that Wolfman had in those stories. And it, they... Uh, the quality of the Brother Blood stories differs depending on which one you're reading. But it was basically that he wanted to make the church look good and be accepted and then ran a smear campaign, had her run the smear campaign against the Titans. So I think their use of her in those New 52 um, news pages, yeah. the one that Ambitch Blood was on, I think it was just because she happened to be an available news character that... Um, New fans aren't going to know, so there's no baggage, and old fans would find it as an Easter egg. Okay. So, but yes, yeah, so the character's been around for about 30, 35 years, but has not been used, to be honest. Okay. Prior to that, since about 1996, so okay. it's not, but I just, I found that funny. There was like, no, I don't know who this person is. Whatever <laughs> Omni accent he had, he has, because he, it oh. points he sounded Russian, it points he sounded Irish, it points he sounded German, so. Yeah, he's multinational. Yeah. No, I can't really describe him. Well, before Is he a mortal like Christopher Lambert and Islander? Like, <laughs> oh no. He's lived in so many different Maybe. places over hundreds of years that he just has an accent, yeah. an omni accent. Through everywhere. Who knows? Well, is there anything else uh, you no. want to say before we... Because we're actually here, people, to uh, review some Suicide no, Squad No, let's get books, to these so Suicide Squad books. These, okay. are, these are fun. They were fun, yeah. But first, I am going to get through one that we're not going to review. And it was issue 58, which was a tie-in to uh, War of the Gods. And Shag talked about War of the Gods a little bit before, and it's primarily centered around Wonder Woman. And George Perez was writing it, so people were excited about it. And Circe pops up. So, uh, Suicide Squad 58 was Suicide Attack. That was its subtitle. It came out in October 91. And the big things I pulled out from reading it, Mari has finally, Vixen has finally recovered. She's been under, I don't even know when she, uh, I feel like they were facing the jihad when she got attacked and uh, was in the hospital. So it's been a long time since okay. she's been in the hospital. I can't give you an issue number, I'm afraid. But she's recovered, and then she and Ben, Bronze Tiger, decide to call it quits. Mm -hmm. uh, Firehawk and Silver Swan appear at uh, IMHS. So when I saw Firehawk, Firehawk there, I thought of Shag immediately. She's hot. Oh, gosh. <laughs> Not again. Literally. Um, and so does Black Adam. And Black Adam ends up recruiting the Suicide Squad to help him launch an attack on CRC's fortress, but this yeah. isn't necessarily something we see in completion here in this issue. I think it bleeds over into either uh, issue three or four of the series. Okay. Yeah, good thing. Uh, Waller is still recovering from her gunshot wound during the Dragon Horde, Dragon's Horde storyline. 
and she actually calls up Mark Shaw, the Manhunter, to see if he'll vouch for John Henry Martin, mm -hmm. uh, aka Outlaw. And this was someone that we actually read about in one of the Manhunter issues that I covered. And she also offers Shaw a job, but he turns her down right now. But I sort of have a conspiracy theory that he'll pop up because he just doesn't have a book anymore. So I feel yeah. like, why don't we make use of him? But who knows? Uh, Poison Ivy makes her way to the Amazon rainforest, and she is captured and hung up in her underwear. Yeah. <laughs> and this is the same place that the Suicide Squad attacks, and ironically, Vertigo is the one to save Ivy, kind of, and it's ironic because of sort of the mind control that she put on him. Pariah shows up randomly in the middle of the fight, and we're told to read the rest of War of the Gods. Yeah. Yes! And he had been in the New Titans 81. <laughs> Make it... Megan Sopranicino's here at Starbucks. He he shows up. He's that, but he was a character in Crisis who just showed up when there was trouble and whined. Um, and he's he's kind of here. And, and War of the Gods is kind of a mess because it was supposed to be the big capper on the end of the George Perez Wonder Woman. It was Wonder Woman's 50th anniversary. And I believe he was running into problems over the last couple of years because he took on like too much at once because he did this. He had a very brief run on one of the Superman titles, Action, I think it was. Um, he was also over Marvel at the same time. He did some Silver Surfer, and he did the Infinity Gauntlet, and he left the Infinity Gauntlet about halfway through. Now, he didn't write it because uh, Starlin wrote that, but he did the art. And then Ron Lim took over for the, for the Infinity Gauntlet. So it was almost like him being overwhelmed. And I, from what I understand, he had plans for the actual end of the whole Wonder Woman thing. It was going to be like the wedding of Steve Trevor and Etta Candy and DC scrapped that and he just it it led to him being kind of on the outs with DC a little bit for a number of years and um, he would come back in about 97 to ink Dan Jurgens um, new Teen Titans series the one that had Argent and, and uh, Risk and, and those guys um, and it was almost like he took that assignment just to prove back to them that, hey, I can work on a regular book again, not just special projects and stuff. And eventually he would do the Avengers. And, but it was, um, and it's a mess. I mean, issues like there's this banner at the top of the Suicide Squad issues. There are crossovers that they forgot to put the banner on. Some are misnumbered as far as the reading order is concerned. Um, stuff shipped late. It was, you know, and, and years ago I went back and tried to read it all together. It was like 10 or 15 years ago, and it, it's just, it's a good concept, it just, it, the execution just fell flat. Do you have to read all the uh, tie-ins in order to get the full picture? I can't remember. Um, I know that you definitely had to read the Wonder Woman issues, and there were a couple of other issues I remember. Like, this scene, I think, seemed pretty important, but like, the Animal Man one, for instance, was like him coming across a Native American god, and, you, and, and like, the Superman one was him fighting uh, uh, Quetzal... Quattle or whatever, the, the, one of the Mayan or Aztec okay. gods. Some of those were, were not, but then there was like the Legion one where Lobo fought Captain Marvel. And so, from what I remember, some of them seemed really important and some of them didn't, but it's been a long time since I read. In fact, I sold those issues years ago, so I wouldn't even have the chance okay. to go back through them if I wanted to. But it's it's not like a disaster on the level of bloodlines, which is awful. 
um, it's a disappointment. And I think it's a disappointment because Shag... <laughs> Shag is right. Uh-oh. That Take it's people. George Perez. He's, yeah. and, and it's just... That's the disappointment, is yeah. that it had so much potential. Yeah, with the name. Uh, I wanted to bring up this uh, weird character, Ryder. It's Grant Morrison. I know. Yeah, I, to, I, I looked, looked him it up. up. Too. I looked him up too, and I'm like, and and I read that, and I was like, is this? And he looks like Grant Morrison. I'm like, is this Grant Morrison? And it's Grant Morrison. It's so weird. And um, so he's just a weird character who is basically writing scenes that actually are occurring in the issue before they occur. Uh -huh. So he'll write something and say like, there, a conversation breaks out and then a conversation will break yeah. out. And uh, he does have a wiki page and it says his weaknesses are writer's block and other writers. <laughs> but I just thought it was That's so funny. bizarre. I didn't know where I he think, came from. And well, did you read, um, I think, and I think looking at the, I was looking at the DC Universe online database, the DC Wikia. Yeah, yeah. And I think his only other appearances as the writer would be in Animal Man issues. Okay. Where, have you ever read his Animal Man? Run? I haven't. It ends with Animal Man, spoilers, it ends oh with God. Animal Man showing up at his doorstep and meeting oh. the person who's writing him. So it becomes this metafictional thing. I see. Which is where kind of Grant Morrison's metafictional thing starts. And so I, I want to know, and, and I guess this would be a question to ask John Lasterander if he ever had the chance. Is he just poking a little fun at that? Because he noticed the whole thing about the writer and this character. Yeah. He's Mr. Metafictional, he knows it's going to happen. And his death scene is like, uh-oh, I, I can't say. And then he ends up getting killed because by the writer's block yeah. or whatever it is. Uh, but overall, an issue that, I mean, not much to take away of, unless no, you're no. reading War of the Gods. Yeah, I mean, I like Black Adam. Yeah. I've always liked Black Adam, and this is a part, a time where Black Adam was not used very much, so it was kind of cool to see him showing up. But yeah, you're right, unless you've, it's, um, it, it's got enough subplots, it looks like, running through this. It's also kind of interesting to see um, Poison Ivy in plain clothes. Uh, yeah. Because I'm used to seeing her, and her skin is, uh, um, is not green yeah because I'm used to seeing like that in recent yeah. years but, but other than that yeah there's some there's also plots accounted for Mazer is a stupid looking character um, and then uh, and then yeah we can move on although I love this ad I love the ad for, for this yeah, storyline the, the Adam Dead yeah. Batman Superman and Aquaman Standing over him, and I remember seeing that ad, thinking I should pick these up, and for some reason never did. Until until now. well, I have I have sixty, sixty one, and sixty two in paper. Fifty nine, I had to. You sent my way. I did, but I, I will eventually pick it up because yeah. I'm trying to get a whole run of this. So yeah, so we are going to do this Adam big. Well, it's like Ray Palmer and Adam Craig storyline. Yeah. Basically, won't spoil until the end, but. Okay, yeah. so yeah. Alright, so I've got the summary for Suicide Squad number 59. It was cover dated November 1991, according to Mike's Amazing World of Comics. It Who, was on look, sale. Let me stop you there right now. Do you know, have you ever seen this Mike? Do you know who he is? Who is the man behind the curtain? Uh, his name is Mike Voiles. I have contacted him. <laughs> okay. I have emailed him because still he's also digitally. the well, he's also the webmaster of the Two True Freaks website. I so, still so he's the person who gave me my account. I think he's Brainiac. No, I don't know. He might be Oracle. <laughs> okay, so, continue. Um, it's on sale October twenty, October seventh. Cover price a dollar twenty-five. Um, Coverwood is by Jeff Isherwood and Carl Kessel. Kiesel. 
Uh, and I'm going to give the credits for all four of these issues because they're all the same throughout all four issues. So you okay. and I don't have to do this repeatedly. Okay, sounds good. John Ostrander and Kim Yale are your writers. Jeff Fisherwood's your pencil. Robert Campanella is your inker. Todd Klein, letterer. Tom McGraw, colorist. Dan Raspler is the editor. I'm going to pronounce this horribly. Leisure de Main? If I'm trying to... Or is it Leisure de Leisure de Main? I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. I'm, I was going for the French okay. of tomorrow, but... Uh, part, it's, and that's the, that's the name of the, the four-part story. Part one is Forces in Motion. We begin on Blood Island, Chesapeake Bay, Maryland. Uh, unlike Picnic Island, which the Scooby-Doo gang was trying to get to in that... Uh, Harlem Globetrotters episode from back in the 70s. Blood Island. <laughs> you sure are dating yourself? I have it on DVD. <laughs> okay. Um, it's on the other side of the DVD that I have the Batman. So oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think I remember I was talking about So, Blood Island, Chesapeake Bay, Maryland, which is across from the uh, Patuxent Naval Air Testing Station. President Marlowe, the disposed president of Quarack, is milling around. He's in prison on Blood Island while he waits a trial. Two MPs have a conversation that acts as exposition for our audience, catching up on why he is there. Of course, they also wonder if someone is going to break in and either rescue or kill him. Offshore, Amanda Waller and Carmichael, who I believe is the thinker? Yes. Okay. Watch, and then Nightshade pops on the boat to tell them that everyone is in place and we'll be ready by tomorrow morning. Meanwhile, on the Gotham City waterfront, Batman instigates a friendly neighborhood bar brawl in order to make, find Monty Walsh, who has information that Batman needs. Batman finds Walsh, who has decided to run out the back door and into an alley. But Batman wants information on the death of Ray Palmer, also known as the Atom. Walsh says that Waller knows Pal knew Palmer was going to die. Batman heads off. A mysterious figure asks if Marlowe has talked yet, and then asks about how much of an ingrate and talks about how much of an ingrate Marlowe is. Then we head to Metropolis, where Agent Pollard from the CBI tells Superman that Suicide Squad is going to attempt to either kill or rescue Marlowe soon. At the Institute for Meta-Human Studies, two miniaturized villains catch a man they think is Ray Palmer walking down the hall and plot... And then they plot, sorry, I can't even read my own handwriting. While over in the hospital, Count Vernigo watches Poison Ivy in her hospital bed and tells the doctor that he wants to put her out of her misery. The doctor obviously will not allow this. And then Deadshot walks by and says something that causes Count Vernigo to get on his huffy bike and ride off. Floyd Lawton is confronted by Adam Cray, the guy that our mini-villains think is the Adam. And Craig confronts him about the fact that Deadshot killed his father. Lawton couldn't care less, and he walks away. Back on Blood Island, uh, a squad spy notices Gollum, who is one of the members of an Israeli metahuman team, sneak onto the island. He wonders what to do and is told to wait and let the Israelis do the hard work. At uh, the Institute of Metahuman Studies again, Barbara Gordon wheels down the hallway and takes a moment to admire the physiques of Major Force and Mazer even though their costumes are a little bit ridiculous, then is confronted by Batman. She scolds him, telling her him her name is Amy Beddoes. He gets the point. She takes him back to her lab. After some Bat family history back and forth, Batman says that he has information that leads him to believe that Amanda Waller had a hand in Ray Palmer's death. She, vou she vouches for Waller, but she isn't convincing enough since Batman wants to know where Waller is. 
Waller is in Fishing Creek, Maryland, going over some plans with the squad. After the meeting, Captain Boomerang approaches Adam Cray to tell him that he understands why Cray doesn't like Lawton, and then he offers to help. In Gotham, Batman is joined by Superman and Aquaman. He tells them the connection that may exist between Waller and Ray Palmer. Superman says he's been asked to help protect Marlowe from the squad, and then Aquaman wants to know if they're going to do anything about it. Batman says, oh, we're going to do something. Now we know where to look for Waller. We go find her, and we ask Waller, and then, and then we ask Waller, and this new Adam, some very pointed questions. Now, I think what we'll do, people, is similar to what I did last episode with, uh, or two episodes ago with Dragon's Horde, and we'll review the entire story together. But before we move on to the next one, I do want to talk about the Barbara Gordon Bruce sure. Batman scene. Sure. Because this is actually the first time that they have interacted oh, wow. since the Killing Joke. And I guess you could argue that one scene where they're over... Uh, Jason Todd's grave site, but mm -hmm. there wasn't really any interaction here. No. So, I mean, when you saw, I mean, knowing that now, or when you read it, did you have any initial thoughts when, when that stuff was, when he popped up um, at IMHS? I, knowing what I know now about Oracle, I, there had, the scene had to be here. Mm -hmm. You can't have Batman in a Suicide Squad, squad story with Barbara Gordon there and not have them interact. So, um, I love how she is so not intimidating here. And I love the comment, because she, he's like, cause, cause she, she, she does kind of uh, fuss at him about how they always put the blindfold yes, on and yeah. all that. And he's like, I can take my mask off. And she basically says, when I'm ready to know, I'll know who you are. Like, she, she doesn't, you know, I don't need your charity here, whatever you want to call it. She's, and, and that's what I kind of liked about that. And that she's, she's not impressed. It's like, you know, she's not in awe of him anymore. She's not impressed. She's, she's your own woman. And, and, um, and, uh, and I think she understands why the Justice League is involved in all this because it's one of their own. Yeah. And I like the fact that these three are involved because it is one of their own who supposedly died. Mm -hmm. And uh, I also got a chuckle out of at the fact that she uh, checked out Mazer and Major Victory on the way to. <laughs> All little boys in spandex. Yeah. Stop it, girl. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I agree. It seems like she's a completely different person now. I think she really went through a growing experience from the killing joke and, and everything and, and she grew up I guess to a certain extent and I mean to it almost looks like she's not happy at the beginning um, possibly because he called her Barbara and she's been That's really is, she's yeah. been really um, She's really been pressing that she's Amy Beddoes, and mm -hmm. Amanda Waller obviously knows that that's not her real name, but she doesn't know that she's Barbara Gordon. So I think that's one of the one of the points. But yeah, absolutely, that blindfold thing I thought was funny, and it also reminded me of Batgirl Year One, where he knocks her out with sleeping gas, yes. and then Alfred, you know, takes her back and and all of that. Um, and, and I also thought it was interesting that she defends Amanda Waller to him. And he and Amanda have had interactions in the past, yes. so I can see why he doesn't trust her. And I'll talk about Amanda later, because I think there are some big and great character moments with her. But I just thought it was good that, um, or it was, it was interesting that Barbara at one point says, that doesn't sound like Amanda. 
so that she would believe yeah. in Amanda more so than what Batman yeah. is saying. Well, it's like because he walks into the room, and even at this point, because this isn't this isn't the Grant Morrison Batman. This isn't the this isn't the JLA Batman. But even at this point, he's still of the attitude of. You know, I walk into the room and everybody should drop what they're doing and give me the information I need. And she's like, you know, hold it right there. You know, you don't, you know, you're not the authority on everything. She's challenging his authority in a way that is uh, believable. Mm -hmm. Because she's looking at him now as a peer as opposed to an underling. Or like, as as her being the underling. She's no longer her a mentee. She's no longer a protege or something. She's... You know, she's um, she's very much uh, any other government spook or whatever he would have to deal with as a contact. And knowing what she knows about him, and she probably knows that he's who he is. Yeah. She's just toying with him a little bit. And yeah. I think, I think, I um, I get the feeling that he would be impressed by that. That line where she says, um, "That's okay." When when I really want to know who you are, I'll dig it up. How can I help you? I have a feeling deep down that he's inside. He's smiling because it's like you know, good. You know, I don't. I almost said the phrase "good girl," but you know what I mean. Yeah. Like, yeah, you know, and and that's that's why I like about this scene. Is I like how. That's what I've always loved about Barbara Gordon as Oracle. Is that she just she. She doesn't take crap from people who think that, you know, they're the, you know, the authority on everything. Yeah, and she's no longer, you know, the quote-unquote little girl that's trying to play Mm -hmm. the boys game. She's not playing dress-up anymore. Yeah, which I feel like that's what he saw. It's also interesting, there's no shock on either of them. There's no shock when Batman walks in that Barbara's there. There's no shock when Barbara sees it's Batman. So I do wonder... Did, how long has Bat? If he has known, how long did he know that yeah. this is what she's been doing? That's it, a question I would. It may have. be in the back of her mind. She's just like, of course he knows. And then, yeah. and at the same time, she's being very professional. Mm-hmm. You know, they're in an open hallway. They can't. You know, there's cameras. She can't. There's only so much she can give away. And then when she's in the lab, like you know, when she dresses him down. Yeah. You want me to go on to yeah, 60? Okay, Suicide Squad number 60. Um, I don't have a... Uh, this is just cover date of December 91. It is part two of our storyline, and the part two is called Dangerous Games. We open on Blood Island, where the Israeli strike force, Hayoth, I believe that's how you pronounce it, <coughs> from the previous issue, is making their move. Superman stands on a boat watching and waiting. Our spy waits and watches as well. Marlowe sits in his cell. Aquaman watches a squad member watching the half. Magician Rambot. At a side gate, a young girl approaches an MP crying. He asks her what's wrong, and after she gets close enough to him, she attacks him psychically and causes him to suffocate. The Hayoth team moves in. Batman follows the woman with the sword. Superman uses a super breath to part the water, and they hit the spotlights in the boat, surprising the Hayoth team. Batman confronts Sword Girl, whose name is Judith, and they begin fighting. The Aquaman takes on whom he thinks is a squad member, but is actually a mercenary who's there for Marlowe. Superman fights Gollum. With the Americans distracted, the guy who's been watching from a boat busts Marlowe out and brings him to psychic killer girl who says, you're not, before Marlowe knocks them both out and reveals to him to be Nemesis. 
He tells his contact that these two were part of a terrorist jihad cell and that his cover has been blown. The superhero fight continues and is about to reach a climax when Nemesis approach everyone, approaches everyone with the jihad members and says, well, we need to talk. Or the Hayoth members and says, we need to talk. Shortly thereafter, we have an all-hands meeting with Superman, Batman, Aquaman, Nemesis, and all the Hayoth members, along with their boss, an Israeli colonel. The colonel insists that the Americans would look the other way if they snagged Marlowe. Nemesis says that Sarge Steele asked him to impersonate Marlowe bef before he was hidden elsewhere. Batman asks where Marlowe is, and Nemesis says he doesn't know. Aquaman asks how this is connected to Ray Palmer's death because they want answers from the Suicide Squad. Batman wonders the same thing. What is the squad up to, and what is Waller up to? Waller, we see, has Marlowe. He's tied to a chair, and the Thinker is about to interrogate him. Yes. Yeah, that little girl is pretty creepy, mm -hmm. I have to say. She's drawn really creepy, too. Yeah. Um, yeah, I guess we'll continue on unless there's anything big that you wanted to... No, there's no barber scene in this. The barber scene is in 61, so yep. we can talk about the whole story afterward. Yep. Okay, so we're moving on to Suicide Squad 61, Ledger Domain Part 3 Snafu, and uh, January 1992 is the cover date. So the real President Marlowe is being manipulated by the Thinker and tells Waller about the Cabal. Someone came to him several years ago because of Burak's experiments with metahumans and they will share info if he shares results of the experiments. He doesn't let on that the experiments will result in a group of metahuman power terrorists that would then become the Jihad. And the Cabal is a part of American government, military, industrial, CIA, FBI, so basically all this scary stuff wrapped up, to, wrapped up into one thing. The Thinker presses him about the President and Congress, the U.S. President, but Marlowe turns to Waller and says it's actually her fault, which shocks her, because of the creation of the Suicide Squad. She had the right idea, but what what if they could control people like Superman? Waller realizes this is the reason why they went to all the trouble to get Ray Palmer, not because of his belt, but because of the info that he has on the Justice League. Waller wants to know his contact, and while he struggles, he eventually says Major George A. McClellan, Air Force. So then the thinker tries to have some fun, but Waller gets Oracle to shut him off, and Oracle lets her know that Batman was there looking for Waller, asking about Ray Palmer's death. Batman, Superman, and Aquaman are still at Blood Island discussing what had just happened when Nightshade appears as a shadow on the back of Nemesis's head, which I thought was an awesome scene. And he tells her what went wrong and mentions the Cabal, and Nightshade weaves a little noisily and then reports to the Wall, aka Waller. Waller is then visited by Sarge Steele, who orchestrated the bait and switch, and General Wade Island looks to be on the other side of all this, perhaps a member of the Cabal, looking to get the Atom. The Atom and Boomerang are wandering around some derelict buildings when Boomerang knocks Atom out, shrinks him down, and hands him over to the Micro Squad in exchange for half a million dollars. Then some other larger agents attack Boomerang, but unfortunately he makes it out okay. <laughs> Later, Sarge Steele tells Waller that McClellan is currently stationed at Blood Island, ironically, possibly the most protected he could be since all that stuff that's going on over there. And there we see McClellan shoot a guard and free the members of the Jihad as a distraction so he can get away. 
McClellan gets stopped by other guards and the shots bring the attention of the three league members and the squad and there's then a full-on fight between everyone on Blood Island and I believe this is the one with the double paid spread isn't it? Yes, the cool it is. one. Yeah. I really right like here. that. There it That's is. A cool yeah. Spread. Yeah. They don't have they happen a lot in modern day comics, but I feel like this and, and vintage comics back they don't happen as much. Yeah, so I were, always like to stop and look at them. Yeah, when they they were very um, judicious yeah. with their spreads. Yep. So elsewhere Adam is being interrogated by the micro squad. All of a sudden the noise level went down. Uh, Adam is being interrogated by the micro squad thinking he is Palmer. They reveal that Palmer has to be alive because the body in his coffin is actually their compatriot Ginsburg. Adam struggles and flees, but Black Snake comes up behind him and impales him with a six-penny nail, which would be comedic if it were not tragic. Yeah, I know. Uh, next, we have the conclusion, and this is Suicide Squad 62, Ledger Domain Part 4, Number the Dead, and the cover date is February 1992. So Adam Cray, the Adam A-T-O-M that we were with for several issues, is now dead, and the other members of the Microforce are upset with Black Snake because the Cabal wanted Adam alive, and they deal sharply with failure. Black Snake uses Adam's belt to grow to real size, and then grabs the two other members of the Micro Squad and squishes them. But Sting, the final member of the squad, appears and looks upon the scene, saying that, of course, Palmer isn't dead. So this gets Black Snake's attention. He shrinks down, and then Sting reveals that he is, in fact, Ray Palmer. And then there is an epic shape-changing fight between the two, where if you have gone off and seen Ant-Man, Okay, I shall I not talk too much Sorry. about it. But there's kind of that, just where they're using their belt, it's a pretty cool, uh, gotcha. cool fight scene. Elsewhere, Thinker is hooked up to a phone line, and Waller and Steel have a rough conversation about how the mission has gone thus far. Thinker gets a communique from Blood Island, and we see the epic fight continue there. And McClellan uses the fight as a distraction to get away, but Aquaman chases after him. Bronze Tiger tries to get Batman to look at the real problem at hand, but Batman's more interested in fighting, which I thought that was interesting. And Lawton almost helps Boomerang out, but he thinks better of it and just lets him fend for himself. Palmer takes back Adam Cray's belt and grows to real size, leaving Black Snake there. He takes Adam Cray, he, he brings him back to normal size because Adam was very tiny. So now Adam Cray is regular size, but he's still dead. And Aquaman gets aboard McClellan's boat and tells him to turn around, but it's too late as Aquaman dives off and McClellan drives into rocks. What a way to go, go. At Blood Island, Superman has had enough and uses a super clap to stop everyone. And my thinking was, why didn't you do this in the first place? But okay. Palmer then explains why he had to fake his death. A bit of ledger domain, so it all comes back, which is a sleight of hand. But he couldn't turn up anything on the cabal, and Adam Cray suggested uh, the attack. He took Sting's place when he came to steal, having enough information uh, from or with the Cabal. And Aquaman wants to know why he didn't tell the League, and Adam admits that it's better to leave smoke and mirrors to the squad. Meanwhile, at the White House, Waller and Steele suggest that the President is a member of the Cabal. Waller doesn't have enough evidence to prove it, but she could probably convince some Leaguers, and then it would just spiral out of control. If she ever hears a whisper, she will make sure people will know. 
and the president at this time, which I looked up, would be uh, George H. W. Bush. Yeah. So this I don't is know before um, <laughs> Clinton doesn't take office till January of '93. Yeah. But although, what's funny is that the I don't think that if they're going for the real president, that's a that does not sound like the type of. Um, language the president would use i don't know bush yeah. did not speak me as uh, speak as strike me as yeah. somebody who would uh, cut off the g's and ing and say very interesting report this year it just that does not sound like george bush so maybe they were just using a uh i don't know i haven't read enough of the other squad and check yeah. stories to see if there's an actual president in place here uh, so outside of the West Wing, Steele asks Waller what has become of Palmer, and she says that he is going to stick around with the squad for a little bit, perhaps find another Adam to replace him, and then go into retirement because Adam Cray's death has really gotten to him. And Waller admits in a very touching moment that it's gotten to her too, and every death in the squad has gotten to her. She numbers the dead and will never take it lightly, and that goes back to the, the subtitle of this issue. She only wishes everyone she's worked for felt the same so big character moment I think for Amanda and that's the end of this next up is Viva La Squad the next story yeah. <laughs> so um, yeah the story as a whole or um, perhaps moments that really stood out for you yeah well we got um, I've always uh, I didn't know who I knew who the Adam was mm -hmm. going into this um, this is the first time I've read this four-parter. The one we covered at the very beginning of the episode 58, I read that when it came out because I was reading The War of the Gods. Um, I knew who the Adam was based on, he may have been in a couple of cartoons at one point or other, but I remember I had read Crisis on Infinite Earths at that point, so I knew, I didn't know he was dead. So I've always been kind of curious as this. Um, Quarak is is a general is the generic Middle Eastern country they created so that they didn't. Um, which, on some level, it sounds like they're trying to be politically correct and not upset one particular country. But at the and on the other hand, if the political situations in those countries change, like a government is overthrown or either a revolution happens or something, you have to keep up with the times and it dates the story by having this be Iran or Iraq or something. So creating a fictional country around it is actually a really great idea because then you can just tell whatever story you want. Now, about a year later, they would blow this country up. <laughs> Cheshire, who was uh, yeah. the terrorist who was had the child with Roy Harper mm -hmm. um, in an issue of Deathstroke in somewhere in 93, drops a bomb, a nuclear bomb on Quarag. Wow. And the repercussions of that are pretty, um, like in the late 90s, there's a storyline called The Trial of Cheshire, where she's finally captured and brought in to stand trial for the crime of nuking a country. So That was a big setting. I don't think it was 52, but um, uh, 52 the next was, one? Um, no, Countdown? Countdown? Because 52 would have been uh, the Black Adams country, which is... Then maybe it was... Kandak. Oh, that's what I'm thinking Kandak. of. Yeah, that's yeah. what I'm thinking of. Korak is a different country. Yeah. Korak came about, I want to say it was like a Marv Wolfman creation okay. in country in, in looks like the Adventures of Superman and his run of that. So I'm not I'm not entirely sure that Michael Bailey could probably tell you, but uh, but I think that's where it came from. But I always love the use of that. Um, it honestly took me a minute not to be confused by who some of the characters were. Yeah. And and who was working for whom and who was on what side. But once I got that straightened out. And once I realized that, because sometimes with these stories where it's like 
and she, she and you, you realize that the time frame is very short and it's like once I kind of realized oh, this takes place over just a couple of days yeah. and there's all these then I was like wow this is actually a really really tightly written story mm-hmm. I think that's what I that's what I really liked about it yeah. you've got this person working with this person you've got evil little orphan Annie over oh here gosh, yeah. and um, issue two issue two issue 60 is basically uh, what's the expression punchy punchy yeah. run run it's yeah. basically a big fight you know it's yeah. it's a big fight scene that keeps going on it's mm-hmm. going on all the way to the end of issue 62 at one point little orphan Annie takes over Superman, she causes him to she she can cause she's kind of like phobia mm, yeah. from the Brotherhood of Evil, where she can apparently she can make your in your head make your greatest fear come true. And the one guy was suffocating to death, and with Superman is losing control of his powers, and he starts to lose control of his powers. And once he finally mentally overcomes that, that's when he uses the super clap mm-hmm. and knocks her out. And, uh, and the whole thing with the, the twist with Palmer being yeah. Steve. That was good. Yeah. Because I had no idea that yeah. was coming. Yeah. The whole I mean, thing, yeah, everyone, each time that Adam Cray was on page, everyone was really thinking that you're Ray Palmer. Even Barbara Gordon was thinking you're Ray Palmer. And yeah. he was very open. He's like, here's something, here's a cup. It's got my DNA and my fingerprints, and you'll know that it's not. So that was a complete switcheroo. That's yeah. not what I was expecting yeah. to happen. Barbara looks good in fatigues, by the way. <laughs> oh. Yeah, she didn't have too much. I like when they do fight scenes like this with different yeah. teams. I always like to see the characters that they they pit against mm-hmm. each other. Yeah. And it's it's almost like um, an oxymoron, Superman versus that girl, because you like, completely pull her off. I know, I know. Physically, anyways, but she goes for the mental. Yeah. And Batman versus Bronze Tiger, I feel like that's not the first time, but yeah. definitely, I mean, two of the best fighters of the DCU. Yeah. And how ironic that Bronze Tiger is the one that's trying to be level-headed and be like, man, you need to look at the bigger picture, and, and Batman is not yeah. having any of that and, and is going after them. And for the most part, um, Batman looks good in these. Jeff Fisherwood does not overdo the costume. He doesn't give him, like, McFarlane cape and stuff like that. And, and he, the thing that he does, and I noticed this in, in reading this, um, he gives Superman that sort of bulked-up look that Superman had at this time where he had almost like a body, like, burn when... You know, Kurt Swan would draw Superman on like lesser stature, even though he was still Superman. Burn like had him really, really broad shouldered. Batman's really lean, and he draws him that way. Except for I've got it open to page ten of issue sixty-two. That is the most awkward-looking kick. It I is. Ever seen. Yeah, look at how his ankle is turned <laughs> inward. It's like how did you not break something? I don't know. Yeah. No, he. It's really well drawn, mm-hmm. and you're right. And and the. And it's just one big fight over the course of those three yeah. remaining issues, and I, and I like that because it's when you read this together, it's really, really well paced, mm-hmm. and it's it's still going on. Yeah, um, I love how Aquaman just lets this guy die. Well, he warned him, so I guess. Oh, and then he's just like. He feels like he did his duty. He, what's his line? It's um. I told him to turn the boat around. Why can't I get any answers to my questions? Like. Oh my gosh! Yeah. Like you know. Uh, Rob Kelly, uh, please tell us why Aquaman just doesn't seem to care that this guy is dead. <laughs> Ooh. I should do a screen capture of that and post it on Facebook. Yeah. And, and ask him, explain yourself, sir, <laughs> or explain, explain Aquaman. No, this yeah. is really, really well done. Yeah. It uses the JLA characters in a good way. Um, Ray Palmer is very lengthy. I'm, I'm glad I didn't have to summarize this uh, exposition on page 20, where he explains the whole reason yeah. why. It, 
it was very convenient. It was very much for the readers and for Superman, Batman, and Aquaman, but it was very much for us. Of like, you know, huh? And okay, somebody has to explain this to us. Yeah. It was very, very text heavy at the end there. I think the the big thing that I pull out from that last page though is honestly when why when Aquaman says, "Why didn't you ask us for help?" and Adam says, "You know, we deal with the bright the bright color costumes and the smoke and mirrors go to Suicide Squad." I thought that was a really big point. Yeah. To end on. Yeah. Which I liked. I liked Waller in here and her comments about knowing the dead. Yeah, exactly. And, counting. Yeah. and I also liked in the beginning of the interrogation where she has to like she, she it's not like it's surprising that the suicide squad would be the inspiration for other governments to do the same thing and she probably had it in the back of her mind but it's that weird sort of hubris that you have perhaps that it's like you know wait I didn't realize it would be used against us like it, she, she seems genuinely surprised when Marlo is like well we have you to thank for all of this yeah. because you're the one who put this together and it's like well no duh of course somebody was going to take the idea and, and make it yeah. a Koraki strike force or you know whatever and possibly use it against the United States yeah. there's historical precedent for that but but there's, it also is very realistic that she would be surprised by it because she's very much in her own world. And it's a little bit of, you know, it's a little bit of hubris on her, her part. And I yeah. appreciate, I appreciated that yeah. because Amanda Waller is probably one of the best characters to come out of that, out of uh, post-crisis DC mm-hmm. in terms of somebody who is very human and very flawed, yet just really, really, um, Strong. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which which Sag says is very hot. That <laughs> power and you know confidence is very hot. In the well, they had her. Um, they had her in. She's obviously going to be in the new movie, but when they had her on Smallville. Yep. And she was played by Pam Greer. Oh yeah. Oh, that yep. was the, <laughs> yeah. that was perfect it casting. Was great. Yeah. yeah. And I I love CCH Pounder too. Yeah. 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 So this is this is good stuff. Yep. You know, I this um, is really this is really really yeah it's funny because maybe Amanda Waller doesn't know her DC Comics history as much because China did like a Sino Superman like Mm -hmm. they did three different Superman and I remember Tony Gordon which who doesn't exist anymore pops up and that's when he really dies the brother of uh, Barbara Gordon so it's they've done it in the past but yeah and Chag will correct me on the numbering but somewhere (laughs) in the early part of Ostrander's Firestorm run, he faced off against a Russian version of Firestorm. Oh, I think there was wow. a Soviet Firestorm, I think, at one point. I think it was around issue... It was right around, like, in 1987 or so. Right around when Ostrander took over the book, right around Millennium or something, because he, he got, like, the Matrix got screwed up. He got fused with somebody else and something. But I remember there was, a, there was a Russian version of Firestorm involved at that point. He could probably clear that up for you. But, yeah. But... Again, but then again, Waller probably ignored it. Like, yeah, it's not going to happen to me, you know? Yeah. So. But I totally agree with you about just her characterization in here. And I think those last couple pages, even if you didn't see her throughout the rest of the story, just those last couple pages, I really like to see that she doesn't treat her agents as just items that can be killed and replaced yeah. easily. And that she actually 
not needs consolation, but you know thinks about their deaths and, and yeah. contemplates it. And I don't know if she was always like that because she said I've always been like that. But after her jail sentence, I feel like she's really become a different character and is mm -hmm. more compassionate. And I really like this version of she's still hard as nails, but yeah. I, I like that she has a compassionate side to her as well. So yeah, yeah she was really good in this in this story. Anything else? No, no. I. Um, what do you think about Adam Cray's death? Have you, did you read much of him before? Like, did no. you have any emotional attachment I, to him? No, I did not. Because while I have most of the Suicide Squad, I'm trying to collect all of it so that I can read all, all the yeah, way through. Exactly. So I, aside from what I've heard on your show, I haven't. Um, haven't really read much of anything about it. So, um, although it was kind of sad to see him die, yeah. because it, it struck me here was somebody who was trying to do something right, mm -hmm. or or was on a mission to do something, and it was kind of disappointing that he died, even if his death was to, for dramatic purposes to set up a cliffhanger at the end of part yeah. three. Yeah. Because they really did think he was Ray Palmer, because he looked exactly like Ray Palmer. Yeah. So, yep. and I actually thought, I mean, like I said, I give Ostrander some credit and Yale some credit. I mean, they did not telegraph at all yeah. that Ray Palmer had been disguised as, uh, what was his name? Sting. Sting. Yeah. So, leading the police or something. Oh, yes. I should have started the police song. Yeah, I was, I was sad actually to see that. I think I had flipped through previously and I thought maybe he would recover, but he really was dead when that nail went through him. Yeah. Um, and he hadn't appeared much, but when he was appearing, he was really useful. And I, I liked his character. He wasn't as haughty as like Lawton mm -hmm. or, you know, had a lot of the So I, I just thought he had a great personality. So I was sad that he was but it, it works it works for him and he, he is it, it's a consistent trait of his character because when you get into villains united in the secret six and all that he's still a jerk so yeah yeah the only the only um issue i guess i would have with this story is just a problem i had with the dragon's board is that there were so many teams like Groups? Yeah, it gets very yeah, confusing as to who's the, on what side yeah. if you don't know who all the characters are. The Jihad, Hayop, yeah. the Justice League, the Cabal, Suicide Squad, and Micro Squad. Yeah. So. And, and if you're not familiar with every single person in the room, it gets really confusing to yeah. remember who's on what side, even if they are all in costume. Yeah. Do you think we could have done this story with just the Suicide Squad, Cabal, because they were sort of the main antagonists in Micro Squad and, and left out, well, and Justice League, and left out the Jihad and Hayoth? Do you think you'd be Possibly. Able to I mean, you, you might have been able to. I think that Hayoth was. I don't know if that seeds anything for a future issue or, you know, I mean, it's just another group that's after Marlowe, so it kind of builds up the idea of Marlowe being that important. Um, which is something that goes all the way back to, I think, the beginning of the, the burn Superman. Because um, he was, um, in one of the issues, one of the earlier issues of the Adventures of Superman, which Wolfman did with Ordway, he's, um, he's one of the villains. So, uh, it, like I said, once I figured out who was who, you know, on what side, the story became a lot more clear. So, you know, on the plus side, it is very tightly written. Mm -hmm. On the minus side, it did take like another read through to really understand, yeah. you know, what was going on. Yep. What would you give this out of ten crosshairs? I would say, and 
uh, about an eight and a half. Eight and a half? Yeah, because it's, it's really that good. It's, okay. it's a nice, tight story. It's a good... Um, you have to know some of the stuff that went on before it, but even if you came in blind, four issues, the, the A plot is so intriguing that if you wanted to go back and look up the stuff, it kind of adds to it. So, yeah. uh, for, for the story, the art... Yeah. <laughs> Maybe about a seven and a half. Yeah, okay. yeah. I, I like Jeff Fisher. Um, he was an inker for years on The Nom, which is oh, a book yeah. that I cover on one of my podcasts. Yes. But I and his his pencils are pretty good. But um, I would have been, it would have been interesting to see somebody else handle pencils here too. Because they're other capable. I like this story better than Dragon's Horde, uh, and but I'm going to give it a seven point five out of ten. I think that'll be my crosshairs. Okay. Now, before we go, I was shocked to see in the letters page a yes. letter written oh, let me by Shaggy D. Matthews, who's in fact Shag Matthews. So, yes, we're going to read this. Mr. Raspler, RE Suicide Squad, Ledger Domain, Sleight of Hand. It appears we may see plenty of trickery and deceit in this new storyline. The escape or murder of Marlowe. The truth behind what happened to Ray Palmer. Personally, I think John Ostrander has Ray trapped in a pillbox in his medicine cabinet. Count Vertigo's illness in the situation with his wife. Boomerang and Cray planning on taking out Lawton. All of these things have the potential to be exciting storylines, but I believe the most fascinating bit of this four-parter is the three big guest stars. Superman, Batman, and take note, Rob Kelly, Aquaman, my favorite, together again after years apart. Once they were the stalwarts of the Justice League, now they get to meet once again here in Suicide Squad. And Suicide Squad is capitalized, and it's not capitalized anywhere else in the letter column. So, it's, oh, it is in another one. So that might have been that might have been the editors. Don't get me wrong; I love this new league, but it's nice to see bits and pieces of the old one every once in a while. I'm a relative newcomer to this book, but I feel that this is the perfect place to see those heroes together. Where else should they appear but in a book about their enemies? The irony is beautiful. One final note: please stop killing Firestorm villains. I love John work on Firestorm, but that doesn't give him the right to kill every villain from that book that he did not create. I also do not like the inclusion of the writer, oh, the writer. in the last issue. Lastly, please do not attempt to include Kid Eternity in this comic. It would not work. Besides those small gripes, I really enjoy the series and see great things in the future. Good day, Shaggy D. Matthews, Tallahassee, Florida. P.S. Please show more of the Captains of Industry. And the only comment from Dan Raspler or whoever is doing the uh, Dan Raspler is there are no particular plans for the captain's shaggy. Oh. <laughs> shaggy. <laughs> so. <laughs> what were your thoughts on that? What was it a I, well-written letter? Was it a whole complaint? It was a well-written letter. Okay. I can't, I cannot, <laughs> I cannot say anything bad. And this here's the reason why. Around the time Shag was writing, a little bit after this, I started writing in letters to the New Titans. And I also had a letter in um, a couple of issues of Damage and uh, in Robin 3, Cry of the Huntress. And um, Rob uh, and I covered that on Everyone Loves the Drake. And I read that letter. And the letter I wrote to the Robin editors, and I was like 15 at the time, 
uh, just embarrassed, like, oh my god. So I can't even make fun here because the, some of the letters that I wrote to comics back in the 90s were just terrible. I mean, just like, I, my friend and I launched a campaign to kill Donna Troy. Oh my goodness. For the sole purpose of getting our letters printed. Okay. Yeah, that was like, we honestly thought, like, how can we get this letter printed? Hey, let's just, every letter we write, let's just ask them to kill the character. That's the only reason we, we wanted it. We didn't really care. Yeah, so... So, but yeah, so it's a well-written letter, Shaggy. Okay. Do you, what, I mean, can we uh, guess his his age in this letter, you think? Do you think uh, 20? 20s? Maybe? I don't know how old Shag is. I know he's older than I am. But I don't think, it's Shag in his 40s yet? I don't know. He called me young one time. Well, you are young, but... <laughs> And then Are he's you a lecherous yet? old man. You're not even 30. 30. Yeah, see, see I'm, I'm 38. Okay. You're, you're young. But I, if he's in his 20s, it's his very early 20s. So he, if he's in his teens, it's his very late teens. This is 92. I would have been 15. Okay. I turned 15 in 1992. So I would have been 14 when this came out. Um, yeah, maybe he was 18, 17, 18. I honestly don't know how old Shag is. Um, so I'm, I'm going to give him the benefit of the doubt and say he was he was a teenager, or late teens, early twenties, college aged. I'm sure. But we're all we're all trying to write in to letter him. Yeah. yeah. I wonder if there are any other if, if this is the only letter he ever had printed, or if there were any others. He told me so he was insulted when I was like when I wrote on his Facebook. There's. You have a letter in here, or, you know, Shaggy D. Matthews, is that you? And he said, I told you I wrote a letter. I just didn't remember what issue. I remember him yeah. telling me, well, but I didn't remember the when issue. Rob, when Rob uncovered the one I wrote for Robin, um, I thanked him because I knew I'd written a letter and had to publish, but I couldn't remember what issue. Yeah. And I, for years, I thought it was a Detective Comics issue. Oh, yeah. And, oh, um, there'd be so much to sort through. And it wasn't. It wasn't. I knew the year around the years. And then... Um, uh, the damage, the letter I had published in Damage, I came across it in an, in an issue when I was rereading the series and I had totally forgotten I'd written the letter. So. There you go. Yeah. Well, well, Shaggy, your name will live on <laughs> for everyone who reads Suicide Squad 62. I haven't signed this. <gasps> that, sh that we should. That's funny. Um, Tom, I guess we're, we're finishing up. Can you yeah. tell people... Uh, where they can find you? I have two podcasts over on Two True Freaks. Uh, the first one is the comics one is in country. I'm taking a issue by issue look at the Marvel Comics series The Nam, which is about the Vietnam War. Um, it's a hundred episodes. It's going to be a hundred episodes. I'm at about as, as of this recording. I'm at about issue uh, episode fifty two. I think it's going to be coming out soon. Um, and that's over at twotruefreaks.com. The other one is Pop Culture Affidavit, where every uh, episode I take a look at something completely random. It could be music, movies, television, comics. Um, and that is over at Two True Freaks as well as popcultureaffidavit.com. Sounds good. Well, as always, it's a pleasure and... It was fun doing yeah. it in person. Yeah, it turned out okay. Let's see, how, let's see how the audio comes out. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. And that is it for Tom. Hopefully you enjoy that experience. I apologize, slash I'm excited about the atmospheric noises that are coming from Starbucks. And up to the point that we recorded, we were going back and forth on, do we go outside? But, you know, you have the, the hot weather and the people outside, of course, talking at normal level. Inside, you have people talking. You have... Cheers moving, which you heard. You have the Frappuccino maker going. So, you know, it's 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 a mixed bag, but but I think that it was a great experience being able to have a podcast 
in the same place and uh, being able to communicate with somebody and, and talk face to face, even if there were those atmospheric noises. Now, there were two things that I want to touch upon post Tom being on here and post the letters page, actually. So we talked about, Tom and I, we talked about the fact that Batman came and saw Amy Beddoes, a.k.a. Oracle, a.k.a. Barbara Gordon, and he is willing to reveal who he is. Now, this may, in fact, be, you know, looking back on it, or in hindsight, a continuity issue, because in The Killing Joke, when he visits her in the hospital, of course, he does say, Barbara, it's me, it's Bruce. Now, one can, of course, say that she was in a very bad place at that moment, just had undergone a horrible trauma, so really would she have identified that he was Bruce anyways? Now, there was a time that she very much knew who Bruce and Dick were, but then there was that weird storyline. If you remember back, and I'm not going to be able to give you the issue numbers, but the story where her memory was put onto specific tapes and she lost all of her memory, and then Dick got those tapes back, but that one tape... He, he took and did not give back to her where where they had identities. I'm also vaguely recalling a story where either she was running around as Batgirl and she talked to Bruce one-on-one, -on -one, or it was, it was Bruce as Batman talking to Barbara. But it seems like in the past they did have some sort of relationship and there may have been some knowledge. I think that there may have been some erasure, of course, with the crisis. And... Uh, even though she may have visited the mansion, she at least knew that Dick was, in fact, Robin at this time. But this could have also been, if you think about it, uh, a game almost, or a a skit. Skit's not really the right word, but, you know, something they were putting on for show because IMHS is most assuredly probably bugged and surveilled, even though the Micro Squad were getting in through... What, and Batman was getting in, but there was probably some recording, so perhaps this was just a dog and pony show. But anyways, I did want to mention that in case there are some people that come on and, and question that. The other thing I want to mention was from the letters page, and I've actually been thinking about Doug's thought for a while now, and no, I don't record <laughs> these episodes in one day. Normally, they're over several days, depending on what my schedule is like, but remember, Doug was the one who commented about the PTSD and that I made the comment that I didn't think Babs was the type of person, trauma or no, that would commit suicide, and he, of course, brought up the PTSD, and... I still feel like, even though I totally get that point, and I know that it changes a person, I really feel like Barbara Gordon is the type of person that, even if she did have PTSD, she would not go down that path to end her life. And the, what I'm citing right now, what I was thinking about uh, on a drive home, actually, were the issues I covered with Brian Q. Miller, where the thinker was the main antagonist, but she was really associating the thinker with Joker. And remember, she had that gun, and she was ready to kill the thinker, and she ended up not doing it. And, of course, this isn't, you know, her shooting herself, but, I mean, that could have been certainly the PTSD right there, that, you know, the thinker is very much like Joker, 
I'm going to finally take control of my life and kill the thing that is, is causing me all this anxiety that caused this trauma. But in the end, and of course it wasn't only her, even though Waller did stand back and say, you know, you need to do what you have to do, uh, even though she was kind of telling her not to. But I just feel like in the end she was able to overcome that. So that's sort of one of the reasons why I just think that Barbara Gordon is really one of those people with a really strong uh, mind and, and someone able to, I, I feel like, control herself despite what she may go through. But, you know, uh, certainly people may uh, may disagree with me anyways, which is completely fine. And again, like I said, it'd be really interesting actually to talk with people that have PTSD to go to a VA hospital or something and, and, and just see, I guess, how it manifests itself. Because I've only seen it you know, on shows and, and things like that. I, I just watched a Chopped on Food Network, and one of the competitors was a Marine, or a former Marine, and he was uh, discharged because he had PTSD, and you could see it was hard for him to, to chop some of the thing, you know, the, the food and get the food processor set up because his hands were shaking so badly. So certainly, I, but I think PTSD, obviously, it manifests itself in different ways, but that's something to do, I think, more research on. Well, anyways, that's it. So those are my little PSs for this part of the show. I'm going to take a break, and when I come back, I'm going to review Batgirl number 42, Batgirl annual number 3, and Gotham Academy number 8. But first, this is Zias's Radio Hour, featuring I'm Just a Girl by No Doubt. <laughs>
Welcome back. 42 of Batgirl. So, you know, questions I had. How is this conflict with Jim Gordon going to be any different? And those questions are answered in this particular issue. Then we have a fun annual. And we also have Gotham Academy, which just adds more mystery and solves some little mysteries. But first up, we have Batgirl number 42, Surge Protection. Writers Brendan Fletcher and Cameron Stewart. Artist Babs Tarr, breakdowns Jake Wyatt and Michael Lacombe. And colors Sergei Lapointe. We pick up where we left off with Batman confronting Batgirl in the street after a short fight with Livewire. Batgirl tries to convince Batman to go after Livewire, but all he gives her is five seconds. Shortly, there is a confrontation in a construction site, and Batman steps out of his mech suit, explaining that he interrupted its surveillance system, but Powers International will reboot the suit in 65 seconds. He explains that while he has been told to hunt the Bat family down, he doesn't necessarily agree, and he knows the city would have fallen long ago without them. He tells Batgirl that she needs to lay low for the time being and hang up her cape for a while. It's the only way that he can keep her safe. And it's these words that trigger a memory from Babs when she first tried to be a cop. Batgirl refuses to give up her cape and runs away the moment the mech suit comes back online. Later, Babs and Frankie watch videos of Leslie Willis pre-Livewire and her electrical pranks, which are being stopped by Superman, but in the videos, Superman's just a blur, of course. Frankie is confident that they can stop her, but Babs is still wary that this is too dangerous for her. Frankie won't take no for an answer and traces Livewire by the surges in electrical systems and finds her at the power plant. Batgirl goes there because she knows Batman's systems will be an easy target for Livewire, and she wants to protect him. Batgirl first goes to Kadir, who is moving to Fox Technologies, funnily enough, and after an awkward and flirtatious conversation between the two, they make up and Kadir gives Batgirl something that can trap and contain electrical energy. At Burnside Light and Power, Livewire and Batman are already fighting with Livewire getting the better of the mech suit. Batgirl puts on some shui goggles and goes to work while Livewire needs time to recharge. Batgirl gets Batman out of the mech suit and she gets him to plant some charges around Livewire in a circle. Meanwhile, Batgirl fights Livewire and uses rubber gloves to protect herself. Batgirl wraps Livewire in a cord, blows the charges which set off the sprinkler system, and then uses Kadir's tech to trap Livewire, which he then hands over to Batman. Batgirl comments that they made a good team, and she hopes he'll come to trust her. She makes a joke that he should have disappeared by now, and clearly he has some things to learn. This leaves Batman puzzled and smiling. One rough morning later, Babs wakes up to noises in the apartment, thinking it's Frankie, but she finds Alicia, who tells her that she is engaged to Joe and wants Babs to be her maid of honor. Next up is Tiger's Paw, and I'll give you one guess as to who that villain's gotta be. <laughs> oh boy. First of all, let me just tell you... The Batman suit, I've said this in the Batman universe, but I love the design of the Batman suit and not the mech suit, but the Batman suit that Jim is wearing that would be like the actual Batman suit once he steps out of the mech. I just think it's, I love its simplicity and how straight lined it is. And I love the, just the yellow outline of the bat symbol on his chest. I just think it's awesome. We actually learn a lot about Batman in this particular issue. And I think it's interesting that this all this stuff did not happen in the main Batman book with Snyder. 
it's clear that Batman is merely following orders and may not actually believe in what the Powers Corps is doing. This is a conspiracy theory that the gang over at the Batman universe actually believe that maybe something a little hinky is going on with the Powers Corps and maybe Jim Gordon is going along for the ride and is actually watching and that's also something that Julia Pennyworth is could be over there doing. But it's interesting that a lot of this stuff is going on in a side book, right, Batgirl? I like that Jim still believes in the Bat family and what they have done to protect Gotham and that what he is asking Babs to do is to protect her. And this is also great because it triggers a flashback, which is a conversation very similar to something that happened in Batgirl Year One, where she continually tried to join the forces of Gotham, and she is, like, cut down by her father, just he wants to, you know, protect her. It's great that the design of Leslie Willis is similar to what we have seen on Superman the Animated Series. I love that they, they stay close to that. Now, it seems like this may be a running theme, but Babs' concern with Frankie being on the team is not unfounded uh, because she was, in fact, injured after she checked live wire bare skin to electrical skin and got burned. And I actually have concerns that something more serious than a burn on the arm may happen to Frankie because if this keeps popping up, you know, there's going to come a time that actually something happens. I love the interaction between Batgirl and Kadir. Uh, it's good to see him back, and I'm happy that he has forgiven her previous betrayal, if we can call it that. We also have a brief flirtation, which may be just that, just a brief sort of fun thing, but you can see Babs blush. I guess maybe it's just sort of the relationship that, you know, Bond has with all of his ladies. So Babs is... <laughs> The one that has these relationships with, with different men that float in and out of her life. Who knows? And we connect to Fox Tech again. So that is the second time. So we are really leading up into Luke coming to town. The fight between Livewire, Batgirl, and Batman is really great. And I love the irony that the daughter saves the father. Even after that huge speech, which of course we he may or may not know that he's talking to his daughter, but he wants to protect her. And here we see she is protecting him. She also brings the smarts and she orders Batman around, which he questions. And she appropriately responds that he is a rookie. Yeah, she's definitely been around longer, in the suit anyways, as a vigilante than he has. And the whole fight is awesome. And I just love Batman and Batgirl working together and it could be any Batman or Batgirl right but it's great that it's father-daughter but the tragedy there is that the he doesn't know it's only one-sided the conversation between Batgirl and Batman at the end is also great and sad at the same time Batgirl keeps to her personality trying to high-five Batman and Jim finally takes on that Batman quality and becomes more severe Batgirl so wants Batman to trust her, and this seems more coming from Babs, a daughter pleading with her father. And when she stares up at him, you really wonder how in the world can he not recognize that she is his daughter. I just feel like he is denying it. He knows it, but he's trying to really deny it. There's just, I mean, her eye holes are so huge. You can see basically her whole face. Ah. Oh. Uh, I don't know. It's it, but it's sad because you want that relationship to be there, and and I think it it makes for some great drama potential if he knew that she was in fact Batgirl. You have to laugh at the way Babs looks in the morning after all that hard work. Well done, Babs Tar. 
And now let's get to the ending, which I've got some stuff to say on this. Alicia is getting married, and um, it's to the Joe that ran away during that ragdoll issue. So this is obnoxious and frustrating for me, and I'll tell you why. First of all, how long have these two been together? Uh, they met shortly before the ragdoll issue, if you recall, and then the ragdoll thing happened, Joe ran away, Alicia was in the building with Batgirl, you know, all that stuff. I wouldn't even stay with someone who, uh, <laughs> who ran away or who was leading me to do some destructive things in a building. I, I wouldn't stay with that person. Uh, but how long has it been since they've been together? Seems pretty quick. I don't know what to think. I mean, Alicia has been pretty off-page for a while now since the new team came on and they've been focusing on Frankie. So, uh, th that's one thing I question. Number two, and this is actually the main reason why I don't like this, is Kate Kane and Maggie Sawyer. If you don't know who these people are, I really do recommend reading the New 52 Batwoman by J.H. Williams III and W. Hayden Blackman. And I think maybe I say this every year, so maybe it's my time to say this. But when the New 52 began, that was perhaps the best relationship that was going on in the Batman universe anyways, because I wasn't really reading outside of it. It was it was so organic in how it grew, and it, it wasn't, you know, let's go straight to bed with these two characters, but it really built emotionally, and there were some great moments. I remember particularly a, a moment on the stair where, where Maggie was comforting Kate, and it was just a beautiful relationship. So how, how does this go, or how does this connect to Alicia and Joe? Kate and Maggie... Uh, became engaged, and then uh, editorial, I guess, or Dan DiDio, I'm not sure. I don't want to put words in anyone's mouths. Anyone's mouths. DC, at least, we can say, uh, said that these two are not going to get married uh, because, well, people can't have happy endings. So I'm not saying that Alicia doesn't deserve to get married because, you know, comic characters, if they find the right person, they, they definitely should. I don't know if Joe's the right person for Alicia. That's another argument. But I just feel like Kate and Maggie deserve it more. And if the marriage between Alicia and Joe go through, I, uh, I, I just feel like I would cry foul because how are these two characters? How is this lesbian couple getting to be married? But we don't have this awesome couple that we've seen grow through the pages because Alicia and Joe have been very off-panel. Haven't really seen that much with them. But, you know, we were becoming emotionally attached to Kate and Maggie. They can't get married, but Alicia and Joe can. I don't really understand that, and that is why I have a problem with that. And I don't think that's the fault of uh, the writers here. Um, Batgirl, I think that's uh, that's like a DC thing That because, I mean, Kate and Maggie was, was nixed, right? So what else can we do? But I, I just feel like they should be the, the two. That, that couple should be the one to pave the way. And uh, I'm disappointed about that. So that is actually my main negative about this particular issue. 
And uh, for that, I'm going to give this a 9.5 out of 10 bats. Great action and emotional conversations. I just thought this was really great. And the father and daughter moments, while they may not have been transparent father-daughter moments, were just wonderful. Next up is Batgirl Annual Number 3, The Gladius Objective. Writers Brendan Fletcher and Cameron Stewart, artists Bangle, David LaFuente, Ming Doyle, and Mingwei Helen Chen, colorist Bangle, Gabe Altaib, Ivan Placencia, and Mingwei Helen Chen. Now, there are so many, I just want to note, there are so many artists and colorists because each portion of this particular annual has a, a different art style to go along with the character that Batgirl is matched up with. So it starts off with Batgirl rescuing a man off the street who cannot seem to remember who he is. She sends an image of the man to Frankie for an ID and it turns out that he is the president of the UN Economic and Social Council who went missing nine days ago along with four other UN diplomats. The last footage of the man before he went missing was close to Shriek Tower by the Gotham Docklands. Shriek Tower, which makes my head turn because I wonder if there's a connection there with Batman Beyond. Batgirl goes to check out the tower, which even Batman couldn't completely clear out, which is noted. Once there, she is met by a crossbow touting Helena Bertinelli, head of Spiral. They believe their cases are related and decide to work together. And Helena then warns Dick, who is also on site, that his ex-girlfriend is around. And he tries to say it's not his ex-girlfriend, but please, Dick, you know, she's your ex-girlfriend. Uh, he tells Helena that she cannot see him because she will know his body language, even if he uses his uh, spiral tech on his face. We also learn that the tower is filled with a group from Gladius, which means sword in Latin, by the way. According to Helena, Gladius was a thorn in Spiral side, though she never mentions her agency by name to Batgirl, probably on purpose. Peace through power is their motto. They stole a device and left a short sword, hello, in its place as a calling card. As they move up through the building, it is clear to Batgirl that Helena brought backup, but she never sees him. And luckily for Dick, Batgirl has to stop and tie her boot at one point, how inconvenient, and they nearly cross several times but are prevented by various things. Helena and Batgirl continue up through the building and discover a room with the four UN diplomats connected to a device. The one-eyed mastermind behind it all runs away, leaving Batgirl to decide what to do. Batgirl ends up planting a tracking device on her, and then a very old and uh, disguised dick appears and tells Batgirl to disconnect the people before deactivating the bomb. Unfortunately, the bomb cannot be deactivated, and the three of them, Helena's in that group, leap with the diplomats. Later, Helena tells Batgirl that the device Gladius stole was a hive mind, which extracts the thoughts and memories of several people and combines them into a single unit. Batgirl mentions the Negahedron, something the diplomat she saved at the beginning said, and Helena says she will look into it. As the disguised dick leaves, Babs recognizes his butt, but says it is impossible. Search your feelings, you know it to be true. No! No! 
In the next part, Backroll tracks the one-eyed mastermind but is caught up in a tussle with Spoiler, who is going on a practice run, quasi-practice run, I would say, for Catwoman. While fighting, Backroll convinces Spoiler to help her on her own mission. Spoiler goes down without Backroll and wraps up the villain, who is not the leader of Gladius but actually works for her. They got the data needed from the hive mind, and when the negahedron is recovered, Gladius will strike. Batgirl leaves her for Spoiler to take in and gets the tracker to her as well because Spoiler was enjoying the look of that tracker. Next, Batgirl stumbles upon a bar brawl with Batwoman who is looking for someone named Tina Nair. Tina is the common factor of all the diplomats, which Frankie found. Nair's place was trashed and brought both of the bats to the bar across the street. Nair may know the location of the Negahedron. They find Nair inside a wicker man. That's the second Latin reference, by the way, because wicker man appeared in Caesar's telling of his time in Gaul. It's something that, well, the Gauls did. The Druids. So anyways, they find Nair inside a wicker man set aflame and the real leader of Gladius, whose name is Gladius. Batwoman saves Nair. Kate was a cadet of her, so there's the connection there. And both bats fight the Gladius leader, and she is beaten but suddenly disappears. So the bats didn't really keep track of her very well. Nair explains that the plans for the Negahedron were encrypted and placed inside a school, and the key split into fractions memorized by each person present, which is what the hive mind was able to extract. So this leads to the final part, where Batgirl is at Gotham Academy. Nair stashed the blueprints in the head of the statue of H. Hiram Dent, but the head is missing. Legend is that the head was stashed below the library. Babs finds a book which triggers a secret door. I mean, how many books did she have to go through to find the book that triggered the secret door? Behind the door, of course, she finds all of the maps who help Batgirl find a box hidden in a wall with the head inside the box. Suddenly, deus ex machina, Gladius reappears and steals the head. There's a fight on the roof. Maps hits Gladius with the battering Damien gave her, and Batgirl lands a punch which makes Gladius drop the head. Once Gladius is wrapped up for good, they discover there is a microfilm inside the head. The three girls look at the microfilm in the library, and it appears like a bunch of scribbles, but Batgirl overlays a cipher which she got from a colleague, I'm assuming Frankie, and they see the blueprints for the Negahedron. Suddenly, the projector begins burning. Batgirl gives Maps the idea of a superhero club, and Mr. Scarlet appears and chews the girls out of the library. The issue ends with Maps designing her own costume and contemplating this superhero club. The end for now. After this annual, is there any doubt that Batgirl is one of the few people who can play nice with just about anyone in the DCU? At least in the Bat family. I mean, give me a break. You could have put practically anyone in here and it would have worked fine. Damien, I think would have totally been like they would have been chafing a little bit but then he would have totally gone along with her jason we've already seen how that went down that girl's the one i i feel like maybe superman's the other person who can get along with a lot of people in the uh in the dcu but this is great i i love seeing her like this i'm wondering how many other characters can say that there's a good reason why Helena is tight-lipped about what her organization is and just lets Batgirl assume that she's government. Spiral isn't on the up-and-up uh, if you're not reading Grayson, but I actually don't think Babs would know 
what spiral is because that's more of a, a Dick and Bruce thing that's been going on. What I like about this part is Helena and Batgirl fighting their way to the top of a building, almost like a video game, but trying to keep ahead and away from Babs is Dick at the same time. So there's all this stuff going on, <laughs> like a really tricky video game, like an Atari one or that, uh, what is that called? That Carnage game. The Spider-Man one that's insanely difficult, or so I hear. Maximum Carnage, that's what it's called. It's frustrating how many times they could cross paths, but do not, because of random things. And I'm actually shocked that Batgirl doesn't have something to keep her laces laced. Like, and here's a free ad for, some, for someone I know, lace lockers i actually know the lady who has created these and let me tell you these little things here you just slip on your shoe and you put your laces and you don't need a double knot you just put your laces in after you tie them and they they use velcro and lock up and let me i i have two pairs one of them survived the tough mutter while people were you know using duct tape and they still had to stop and retie their shoes i ran that entire race without having to tie my shoes again and also i trained you know hundreds of miles for my half marathon and did the half marathon without it and I actually really recommend it I think you can probably google lace lockers and you'll find it but if you run or if you have anyone who you know who loves to run great gift and they're cheap the lady does not know that I'm I'm pimping out her lace lockers but I do want to at least put that in there because it totally works here but anyways back roll should that's totally bad that her laces come untied here. How weird that Babs recognizes Dick's butt. And didn't Starfire claim Dick's butt in Convergence? I mean, what's up with his hiney? Can someone explain this to me? It's sad that Babs can't know that Dick is really alive. Uh, I still see it as a betrayal. And I'm wondering how it's all going to go down when he comes back to Gotham. And even he somewhat contemplates it, I think, in the beginning and then in the end in the helicopter. But really, it's not the emotional scene that we all want to see. Part 2 is a bit of a puzzle for me. I read Catwoman 42, so I know why spoilers doing this. But it seems random that it would be back row of all people that she would try to attack and get her training with and why does that seem like the best way to train like Catwoman wants her to do I also think the characterization of spoiler is off uh, it's definitely the spoiler of pre-flashpoint no doubt but not what we've seen of Steph in Eternal who's more I would say straight lined yeah she makes mistakes and stuff she's not as goofy I would say as she was pre-flashpoint and, and this is very much an homage to, to that so that that's a little off but I guess it depends on what you want to see but hey we're not dealing with pre-flashpoint anymore so I think we we should see the the newer characterization but I did love the page where you can't see what Steph is doing only Babs's reactions and I was thinking that Steph was going to fail miserably but she's able to wrap up the villain Th you know this whole thing would have been a good opportunity for Babs to instill something in Steph and, and make an homage to Brian Q. Miller's run of Batgirl, but she just leaves her with a gift and a villain to take in and it's just a missed opportunity there. Now the villain reminds me of a character from the recent anime and I know it's also a video game, Gunslinger Stratos. 
about 13 episodes, I think. I really enjoyed it. Named Olga Janatine. She just looks very much like her, except Olga does not have the, um, the eye patch. Now, the Batwoman section is probably a team-up you would not expect. Now, now Babs has teamed up with the Batwoman in the past, but this Kate is rather different from Kathy, who, you know, ran her, not the circus, but, you know, a little carnival there. I like how it connects to Batwoman's past in the army, and it's interesting how closed off Kate seems to Babs, because Kate is very tight-lipped about her history, doesn't even let on. I'm disappointed that Batgirl gets beat up rather easily, and she could definitely use some body armor. I mean, let's think back to issue 42. She was able to really hold her own with Leslie Willis, and then you look here, and she's uh, she's getting she's getting hammered by Gladius. And yeah, she, she may be bigger than Batgirl, but give me a break. She should be able to take her down a little better. But I do like the panel with Batgirl using Batwoman as a step for a kick. And, you know, how is Gladius able to escape? A little neglectful there, they're bat women. Uh, you should have been watching for her a little more closely. So, hey, Tina, let's endanger children by placing a top-secret weapon hidden in the school. How long was Batgirl in the library before moving the right book? That's, that's what I want to know. And, of course, all the maps are there at that moment, mapping the secret passages, which is just kismet. What a perfect team-up. These two girls could definitely be little sisters to Babs. And I like that Batgirl doesn't treat them like kids. She doesn't talk down to them. You know, the first thing was like, what are you girls doing out? Maybe like that, but afterwards, totally treats them like partners and just awesome. I, I would totally love a team-up book with these girls in it. How did Gladius appear so suddenly? Was she tracking Batgirl the entire time? Kind of comes out of nowhere. But hey, the mystery of comics, I guess. I like that the battering came back into play. I hope Maps holds on to that for a while. Now, Babs talks about a colleague, and I assume it's Frankie, but I do wonder when did Frankie give her that thumb drive, and how did she know that that was what was needed? Did I miss something? Did I misread something? That's a big question mark for me that I, I didn't really understand. Did Olive start the projector fire? And does anyone else think that Mr. Scarlet is, is creeping and, and appearing everywhere? Because he popped up in the other one out of randomly quoting the Raven. Ugh, I don't know. But Batgirl gives Maps the idea of a superhero club, and I wonder what will come of the pizza club with that. And, you know, what are the lasting ramifications from this particular encounter? I love that the art reflects the different stories. I, I think, you know, my favorite, of course, is the Gotham Academy one, just because I love that art. But I love that, it, you know, sometimes I think we say, you know, the art's not jiving together, why not keep it consistent? But I think because she's teaming up with different people, why not show that, hey, there's we're, we're in a different scene right now, or we're in a different act. So one of my things with annuals, I like to ask the question of, was it worth it or was it not? And... This one's tough, if only because uh, the Gladius thing was new, right? There's not really been something that's popped up in the back roll. So I hope that this is not the last time that we see the stuff that has happened here. I hope that it's not the last time we see her, meaning Batgirl, team up with these people. I hope maybe Gladius appears later on in her book. I think, you know, it was great. It's definitely like a one-shot, but... I liked it. I mean, it came across well, and I think it's mainly because of these team-ups. It was definitely like an old-fashioned 
Batman family or Detective Comics, just where there was a team up and they're like short little skits that, there you go, uh, vignettes, is that better? Short little vignettes that go on through the issue. And for that reason, I feel like it was a well worth issue, but I hope that we see these, these uh, plot points carried on through the different series. I'm going to give it 8.5 out of 10 bats. Uh, I did like the team-ups and all involving the same story, which is great. Uh, have some problems with some things and, you know, questions about others, so I won't give it a perfect 10 out of 10. But I do recommend picking this up. And on to our final book, Gotham Academy number 8, entitled Requiem. Writers Becky Cloonan and Brendan Fletcher, artist Carl Kershaw, colorist Sergei Lapointe, and Michelle Asarasikorn. Gotham Academy appears to be empty, and we soon see that many people are at a funeral where, in fact, it is raining. It is Olive's mother, Sybil's, funeral. Mr. Mizuguchi tells Kyle to go to Olive, while Mrs. Mizuguchi holds Maps back, who wants to comfort her. But Tristan is actually the first person to get to Olive and leads her away. At school the next day, a girl is flirting with Kyle, who hardly notices. And later at practice, Coach Humphreys goes a little crazy, yelling at Kyle for not using an underspin. Tristan lurks and watches this outburst, and Kyle then returns the lurking and follows Tristan to a lab where he talks with Dr. Kirk Langstrom, the new science teacher. Langstrom says that Humphreys is somehow Milo's fault, and he will have to delay his research into Tristan's condition in order to fix it. Tristan then turns into a man-bat, which Kyle witnesses and runs off to tell Olive and warn her about Tristan, but in her grief she pushes him away and goes to a guidance conference. Kyle also discovers maps in the walls, and she's excited about finding the man-bat, and Kyle is interested at the labyrinth behind the walls. They both go to spy on Olive's meeting with Hugo Strange, where she admits, Olive that is, uh, that she can talk to Tristan, her friend, which kind of hurts Kyle there. Kyle and Maps sneak away and break into Tristan's room, but it's not really breaking in because, hey, Kyle's a prefect. They're caught snooping, awkwardly, and Tristan turns into a man-bat and flies away, and the siblings chase after him into a dark graveyard. Maps uses some of Colton's techniques to break a lock, and they find Tristan wounded. They carry him to Langstrom, who tells Maps to get McPherson, not a nurse for some reason, and Kyle goes to talk to Olive again. She is on a pier, and he tells... Is that the only place they meet romantically? I swear, wasn't it the last time in, like, issue three when they met on a pier? Ugh. It's the only... It's like their special spot. Anyway, she's on a pier, and he tells her about the attack on Tristan. Kyle is concerned about her, and she reveals that she has some sort of fire-starting powers, and she is worried she will be locked up like her mother. Kyle comforts her, and they kiss, but Olive says it is a mistake. Kyle leaves, and she says she will be right behind him when she finds a letter. The letter is from her mother, given to her in case of her death. It says that the truth about her death and her family will be kept from Olive, and that Olive is not to trust anyone. Her mother always loved her, and they'll meet again? Next month, calamity. Well, answers and more questions. So let me get it out of the way. 
I don't think Sybil's really dead. She escapes in Arkham Manor, the book, and I really doubt that she would be incapable of keeping herself alive. Look what she was able to do. She has a friend named Killer Croc. People who have friends named Killer Croc do not die. I also think that there would be people out there that would probably protect her, a.k.a. Killer Croc. The funeral scene, while there is a cliched rain falling, because <laughs> there always seems to be rain falling on funerals, unfortunately. I like that there are little ways that some characters stand out, like Olive's red umbrella or Map's yellow raincoat. And let's not forget that Wayne is at the funeral and he's talking with McPherson. Curious and curious. I like how much Maps wants to be there for her friend, but oddly, the parents only see the benefit of Kyle comforting Olive. Why? Just because they were romantic ones? Don't they know they're no longer together? I don't really understand that, but maybe they think Maps is too mature to, like, properly comfort Olive? I don't know. Does Kyle wear that visor and wristbands always, always and forever? I mean, he totally looks out of dress code, though I did see that his polo shirt has the little emblem for Gotham Academy. Oh, Coach Humphrey's new character looks like Bruce Tim or Cameron Stewart. Not sure if he's modeled on either of them. Looked him up. I don't think he's based off a pre-existing Batman universe character. But I would hardly be surprised if he's Cameron Stewart. And then I'm concerned that Cameron Stewart may be a werewolf. But who knows? So Humphrey goes crazy, and this is somehow connected to Milo and Langstrom. So what is this mystery? Is Humphrey's a werewolf? Which, you know, seen the solicitations you may have, and, and, you know, vampires and werewolves don't really get along, as seen in Underworld and Twilight, so perhaps. And Langstrom and Tristan are also connected, which isn't too surprising, given their man-bat link, but lots of people connected kind of want to know how. Tristan seems to be able to change at will. Was that always a characteristic of man-bats? I thought it was actually uncontrollable. The scenes with Kyle and Olive are difficult to read because he is really trying to help her, but she is in a difficult place, obviously, and she is misreading what Kyle is saying. And the kiss is a good and bad thing because it shows our feelings there, but Olive is not in an emotionally stable place to be with him. And you just feel bad for Kyle, who is just being strung along, though it's obviously his decision because he keeps going after her. And this issue is definitely a Mizuguchi-focused one, and while the last issue was Maps, this one is more for Kyle. While he may be the newest member of the Pizza Club, I feel like he's the worst person to stumble upon Tristan just because I feel like he's the most normal. All the other people in the club are certainly intrigued by these weird supernatural things, but they have some expertise. He's a tennis star who is kind of following his sister and girlfriend, ex-girlfriend, around. So, uh, he doesn't really have that supernatural craze about him. But, perhaps the story will continue with him taking the lead on the mystery of who attacked Tristan. I love Kyle and Maps in the walls and their interactions, though it is, again, sad because... Kyle overhears some hurtful things from Olive unintentionally in her therapy session, but it is inappropriate that they're eavesdropping on this. And hello, Hugo Strange. I mean, how, how are these people getting into this? How is Bruce Wayne not fact-checking, not background-checking, not police record-checking these people? What is going on? I'm surprised that such a by-the-book person like Kyle would snoop in someone's room. But hey, 
it is for Olive, so I guess he, he breaks his rules. He certainly reminds me of uh, the Weasley Prefect. I can't remember. It wasn't George, was it? No. Fred and George are the twins. I can't remember the older one. But anyways, the Weasley, that was like very rule-guided. The other mystery besides what happened to Tristan is why Langstrom calls for McPherson. Who is this woman? Yo, 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 they want to know. She knows all this stuff. She knows Bruce Wayne. She apparently is in the confidence of Kirk Langstrom, one of the preeminent man bats. Whoa, I just want to know. I want to know who this woman is. Give her her own comic and explore it. <laughs> Brendan Fletcher, hear my plea. I'm glad at the end, all reveals about her powers and is open about her fears as well. And it's someone that would clearly not judge because of his feelings for her. So thank goodness it's finally happened. There are a lot of questions about the letter that Olive receives that I have. How did it get there? What do all these things that Sybil said mean? Who is that creepy figure behind Olive? And where the devil is Kilcroc when you need him? Overall, a pretty emotionally complex issue that continues a mother and man-bat mystery. Kyle takes the lead, and that's a nice change because we get to see things from his perspective. You know, this book, I, I just love it. And it's, uh, I, I hope it continues for a very long time. It's just such a breath of fresh air for the Batman universe. I'm going to give this one a 9 out of 10 diplomas. Now remember, I'm not reviewing Black Canary, but I do give Black Canary number 2 9 out of 10 rock stars. If you're looking for something different, I still recommend checking that out. And of course, it's Brendan Fletcher, and you can't go wrong there, now can you? Now over to Chris for his Batman 66 review. Hey, thanks, Stella. As always, I appreciate you letting me give you a little break. Wow, where did that last month go? Hello, Bat fans. Welcome once again to the Batman 66 review segment. I'm very glad to be with you today. Thanks for downloading. And as always, thank you for not fast-forwarding. I'm Chris, and this is the segment where I review the Batman 66 title. Today, I'll look at Batman 66, number 25, cover dated September 2015. The cover art was provided once again by Michael and Laura Allred, and the contents were originally released in download format. This issue has two, two stories. The first one is entitled Night of the Harlequin, and is written by Jeff Parker and art by Lucas Kettner. Our story opens with our heroes being pelted with pies as the result of a booby trap at a bakery that was robbed. The clue left behind at the scene? A playing card depicting a sunglasses-wearing joker. Our heroes race to the Arkham Institute, where they find Joker has been accounted for. He's still in a cell, delighted that someone is carrying on his work. Batman and Robin then ask Dr. Hugo the status of Dr. Harley Quinn, who has been exposed to the mind-altering effect of the Joker wave way back in issue number 11. Dr. Hugo takes our heroes to her room and finds that Quinn has traded places with another nurse and has left a note behind, announcing she's embarking on a new criminal career that will make the Joker proud, signing off as the Harlequin. Our heroes race to the Batmobile, but find Harlequin has activated a booby trap that springs our heroes literally out of the vehicle and into a tree. While stuck there, Harlequin, dressed like she is ready for a roller derby and in a hot air balloon, taunts our heroes before departing. The next page's panels depict Harlequin's crimes, such as stealing the hotline from the commissioner's office, 
to putting a whoopee cushion on the mayor's office chair and tearing off a tag from a couch cushion. Eventually, Harlequin realizes that she needs help and puts out a call for henchmen. Several applicants try out for the job and one suggests that they fight for it and who is ever left standing will get the job. The two that remain standing turn out to be none other than Batman and Robin, who didn't see that coming, and Harlequin is quickly captured. The end. I thought this story got off to a great start, Batman and Robin not knowing who this new threat was, and once discovering who it was, how do you stop her? Then, an ending that was no surprise and extremely abrupt. I don't understand why she's called Harlequin, one word, as opposed to the two-word Harley Quinn outside of Batman 66 continuity. I was even more confused as to why she was wearing roller skates than this roller derby look. The nice cover does depict Harlequin wearing roller skates, and she uses them as she appears to be skating around a giant Joker roulette wheel, ready to use her mallet on a bound robin, a scene that doesn't appear in the comic book. Now, side comment, to me, this image of Robin tied up on the cover looks very similar to the opening credits of the Batman 66 TV episode entitled The Joker's Epitaph, where Robin is about to be smashed onto a giant comic book page by a press. But, on the cover, the image is reversed. Now, back to the story, we have the villainess being tripped up by her own action of soliciting henchmen, as opposed to Batman and Robin figuring out where her hideout was. I would have liked to have seen a longer story, and I don't know if Parker was restricted to a half-issue page count here or if there was any digital format constraints. I had no problem with Kettner's artwork. I have no problem with the inclusion of Harlequin in Batman 66 continuity. I'd like to see more female villains in this series. Now, if I were to do some imaginary casting for when this show originally aired, I'd actually choose Grace Gaynor, who played a... Uh, the Mall Chickadee, in the Penguin episodes The Penguin's Nest and The Bird's Last Jest. Now, though she was a brunette, Gaynor had the sing-songy voice of Harley and was one of the more active malls during the series' run, even managing to capture Chief O'Hara. The second story in this issue is entitled Bad Men, a takeoff of the recently concluded Man Men TV series, which was written by Gabe Soria and art by Ty Templeton. In this story, Barbara Gordon takes a temporary job at an advertising agency and volunteers to rebrand the image of four clients who arrive at the office, who are the Penguin, the Catwoman, the Joker, and the Riddler. Barbara has a quick thought of changing into Batgirl and taking out the villains, but instead has to think of something else as she does not have her costume with her. Ultimately, she gets the villains to an unproductive brainstorming session, then proceeds to present an idea to call the group the Penguin Patrol. Dissension in the ranks ensue, and Barbara calls her father, who dispatches the police over to arrest the villains. The end. I really thought Ty Templeton did a great job with the artwork, and it was a nice treat seeing him depict Batgirl and all the main members of Batman's rogues gallery. As the story is a loose parody, I think it would be harsh to be too hard on the story. Batgirl only appears as a thought, the villains seemingly surrender willingly to the police in the end. This was another story that started out great but sputtered to the end. Still, we got to see Batgirl and all the main villains. Now overall, I'm giving Batman 66, number 25, a generous 7 out of 10 bats. Over on the Batman Universe website, Jerry Green gave the Harlequin story 3.5 out of 5. How will Poison Ivy perform at Batman 66 continuity? What villain or villains will Batgirl assist our heroes in apprehending in a forthcoming issue? What horrific and monstrous villains will arrive just in time for Halloween? 
the answer to these and other mind-boggling missives to be revealed soon. Same Stella time, same Stella feed, same Stella sight. Thank you, Chris. Uh, we are skipping Chipper Spotlight again, still somewhat on a hiatus. Hopefully it will get back. Jacob, don't freak out, but don't change that dial because next is Babs in the Tube. Remember, this is the segment where I examine an individual appearance of Barbara Gordon in the media, whether it be TV or film. And currently, I am watching the 1977 New Adventures of the Batman TV series. So, New Adventures of Batman, Episode 9, The Chameleon, air date April 7th, 1977. Starring Adam West as Batman Bruce Wayne, Burt Ward as Robin Dick Grayson, Lou Scheimer as Batmite and the Batcomputer, Melanie Britt as Batgirl Barbara Gordon, Lenny Weinrib as Commissioner Gordon and Chameleon. A new villain, the Chameleon, strikes in Gotham City, causing a new kind of threat for our heroes to face. Take a listen. Greetings, Bat fans. This is Batman. And Robin, the boy wonder. And me too, Batmite. Welcoming you to the new adventures of Batman. Watch us wage our never-ending battle of good versus evil. Ride with us as we chase the greatest array of villains the world has ever seen, proving that crime does not pay. Get set for thrills and action. Join me, Batman. And me, Robin the Boy Wonder. And Batgirl. And me too, Batmite. In the super new adventures of Batman. tonight because you are the top criminal minds in Gotham City. Yet you still tiptoe around in Batman and Robin's shadow. Why, you big giraffe? I oughta... You oughta listen, because only I can solve your problem. For a price, I will personally catch Batman and Robin. You couldn't catch your breath. Oh, no? to change your mind, Lucky? Hey, get this off of me. Temper, temper, temper. I don't know how you did that, punk, but now you're gonna pay for it. Help! Okay, I give up. Now, how'd you do it? That is unimportant. The fact is that Batman and Robin will be no tougher to catch than you are. Very impressive. What's your name, friend? They call me... The Chameleon. Well, whatever your price is, Chameleon, you've got a deal. Excellent. Excellent!
So, what's your plan, Chameleon? First, take a look at this. And now, to dedicate the new Gotham City solar power plant, here is Police Commissioner Gordon and his daughter, Assistant District Attorney Barbara Gordon. Thank you. When I press this button, all of Gotham City's electrical power will be supplied by this giant mirror that collects not only the energy of the sun, but that of the moon as well. It is a great step forward. Gentlemen, whoever shuts down that power plant will turn off every burglar alarm in town. And with Batman and Robin as my prisoners, Gotham City will be one big treasure chest waiting for you to empty it. And what are we waiting for? Let's get started. Can you believe it, Bruce? We finally have a night off. Mm-hmm. And I'm enjoying every peaceful minute of it, Dick. How do you like your burger? Rare? Surprise! Or well done. Batmite, that was our supper. No problem, Dickie boy. No problem. But first of all, if you're gonna eat, you need more heat. That might turn it off. Okay, okay. Just as soon as I remember how. Never mind. Well, that time I goofed, but this time... But you have important work to do here. Ah, uh, that baloney. And slime, but I'll show Batman and Robin. I'll use the old noodle and a little might magic. Mop, do your stuff. Ah, that's more like it.
coming from atop this building. But the doors are locked. Then we'll just have to take a shortcut, boy wonder. I'll cover this side. <laughs> They've fallen for it. Those dynamic dips are walking right into the chameleon's trap. Holy handcuffs! Is this some kind of joke? Yes, and the joke's on you, you teenage twerp. <laughs> <laughs> That's one down and one to go. Going up. Batman, it's a trap! Get away while you still can! Don't waste your energy, Batman. You're all mine now. Getting away. Mind if I join you? Far out! But pardon me if I don't shake hands. Don't worry. My laser torch will fix that. Thanks, Batman. I needed that. Ah, togetherness. This is going to be even easier than I expected. Or whatever he was, he's gone. He certainly disappeared fast. <laughs> Here I am, caped captives. Just call me the Chameleon. Holy stretch marks, Batman! This guy's unreal! He's real, all right, and we're in real trouble. Boy, am I glad that noise is... Oh, yikes! Here's just a thing for a slippery character like you, Grease. Robin, now! Nice work, Batmite. Yeah, put her there, partner. Holy slush! Oops! Batman calling Commissioner Gordon. Come in. Chameleon blew it. Batman and Robin just gift-wrapped him for the cops. Wait, Lucky. Take another look. I don't believe it. Holy split personalities, Batman! He's not human! I'm not sure what he is, Robin, but I am sure he'll be back. Why is that? Because he didn't get what he was after. Us.
us our money back, Chameleon. We paid you for results, not mistakes. Relax, gentlemen. Relax. I've decided there's no need to capture Batman. What? Listen, you. I have a better idea for making Batman look like the fool he is. I'll fix it so that he shuts down the power plant himself, leaving the city wide open to us. I like it. I like it a lot. <laughs> Fellas, we're gonna be rich. And the dynamic duo will be all through. Dad, here's that file you wanted on... Yes, Commissioner. Batman, that noise, it's back again. Then so is our friend the Chameleon. We're on our way. There's the plane, Batman. It sure is weird looking. Hang on, Robin. He's not here. But there's no way that little airplane could have outrun us. Yoo-hoo, dynamic dummies. Over here. No wonder that plane looked weird. It's going to look a lot weirder parked behind bars. Incredible. Absolutely incredible. I'll say it is. Lucky. Batman and Robin are following the bait, just like the comedian said. Yeah. Now let's find the richest spot in town and wait for the lights to go out. Uh, excuse me, Dad. There's something I have to do. But I'll do it as Batgirl. He's headed straight for the new power plant. Prepare the grappling hooks, Robin. We're almost within range. Roger. Save your hooks, you schnooks. You'll never catch me. <laughs> Yoo-hoo! Cape Crusaders! Where are you? Huh. They must have taken a bat break. Guess I'll have to... Keep an eye on this. But I'd rather be out catching that creepy chameleon character. I guess I'll have to show him a thing or two, or three, or four, or five. Go find a dynamic duo and fight crime where it's safe. 
and the chameleon wanted us to destroy the power plant's collecting mirror. And we nearly did. But at the last moment, we fired a smoke screen that cut off the glare. And we were able to regain control just in time. Unfortunately, the chameleon got away. Well, thank heavens you're okay. I thought you'd crashed. The chameleon thinks so too. But when this smoke screen clears and the power goes on again, I'm sure he'll be back. And we'll be waiting. Chameleon, you're just in time. We hit the blinking jackpot here. Calm down, Lucky, my boy. <laughs> we have all night. Batgirl to Commissioner, do you read? Go ahead, Batgirl. I have a robbery in progress. Request backup assistance and... Batgirl! Never fear, your true love is here. Yipes! Batgirl, grab her. A goofed, huh? You goofed. That's it, Robin. The smoke screen's moving off. And the power's coming in. Hey, the power's on. And so are the burglar alarms. Hey, we're sitting ducks. What is this, chameleon? A double cross? 
No, of course not. Then shut that power off and fast. I aim to. No, they're not. I borrowed part of their car. <laughs> this is it, Batman. You've made a fool of me for the last time. Give it up, Chameleon. You're surrounded. It's all over, Chameleon. I figured out your secret. There's only one way you can do all the things you do. You're a robot. <laughs> so what? They can't stop me, and neither can you. Robin, now! No, stop! Let me go! this. Just wait. I'll get you. Now, look what you've done. Holy Humpty Dumpty. I don't believe it. You've destroyed the chameleon. My masterpiece is ruined. And so is your career as a criminal, Dr. Devious. You know him, Batman? Yes, Commissioner. I sent him to jail ten years ago for inventing an automatic lock picker. He swore then that he'd get even with me. And I will, Batman. Just give me time. Don't worry, Dr. Devious. We're going to give you plenty of time. You'll be happy to know Lucky Luker and his gang are in custody now. Great. I'd say this case is all wrapped up. Uh-uh. You forgot one thing, Batgirl. And what's that? A big kiss for your rescuer, me. Sure thing, Batmite. I'm in love. Bat message. That Dr. Devious sure had a lot of talent to create such a robot. Yes, but it's too bad he wasted his talent on crime. Remember, we all have talents and abilities. And it's our responsibility to decide how we use them, for right or wrong. Speaking of talent, here I am! <laughs> and finally is my literature recommendation. Something that is not on my large reading list is Fun Home by Alison Bechtel, subtitled A Family Tragicomic, and it is a 2006 graphic memoir by the American writer Alison, and she is author of the comic strip Dykes to Watch Out For, and it chronicles the author's childhood and youth in rural Pennsylvania, focusing on her complex relationship with her father. And the book addresses themes of sexual orientation, gender roles, suicide, emotional abuse, dysfunctional family life, and the role of literature in understanding oneself and one's family. And the reason why I, this is great actually, because I had that rant, mini rant, uh, quiet rant, 
of the uh, the Kate and Maggie thing, so this this pairs well with that. But the reason why I wanted to read this actually was because Fun Home was turned into a musical and it was off Broadway for a while, and then it came on Broadway just this summer, I feel like, or this spring, and won many Tonys. So uh, I was just interested in that, and I found out, oh, it's based off of a graphic novel. And so I ended up reading this. And Allison, she's a lesbian, and she came out in college, and she tells her parents, and then her mother says, well, you know, your father had affairs with men. And so it's it's very interesting how it's definitely not a linear autobiography because it goes back and forth and very much little vignettes as as I described above and you know different memories that she has and it's just you know her relationship with her father and also trying to figure out her her father and, and what he went through and her father committed suicide while she was in college and how she was able to identify herself and her father was a big literature guy and he taught English so that's a big theme that runs throughout is just uh, identifying with uh, literature and characters from that but I really liked it there are so I recommend it for uh, more adult people just because there are (laughs) some panels in there and I was in the gym when I was reading it so I had to sort of shield the book so that I could like read the the bubbles but people weren't seeing what I was seeing so just be aware of that but it's really it was I really enjoyed it I thought it was great and you know if you're looking for something different from comics that are still sort of a comic form but they are graphic novels then that is something that I recommend check out and if you're interested in Broadway that's one of my side passions is Broadway then you can check out that soundtrack or go see the musical so fun home there you go Well, that's it. Probably a longer episode. Again, I apologize. Um, But maybe there'll be a short episode in the future. (laughs) Wouldn't that be great? Ah, yes. And aren't you happy that Shag wasn't on and I had somebody else? See? It was someone other than Shag. But don't you worry. Shag will be coming back probably in the fall for the Hacker Files. So you can look forward to that. Remember to send any questions or comments to BatgirlTheOracle at gmail.com. Like the show on Facebook or follow it on Twitter at BatgirlTheOracle. Like the Batman Universe on Facebook as well. And Dustin is still looking for reviewers. So if you are willing to or if you're desirous of reviewing books or video games or movies or I, I mean basically... It's very open for what you can do over there. And, you know, posting news items, there's a need. And it'd be great to have you a part of that family. Once again, thanks to Mile High Comics for sponsoring Batgirl, the Oracle, the Barbara Gordon podcast. And I have nothing witty to say. I'm sorry. Until next time, fly on, Babs lovers. Just plain Barbara Gordon. Masquerading for a lark as she rides into the night on her special Batgirl cycle. Who knows? Is the dynamic duo destined to become the triumphant trio? Only time will tell us more about this dazzling dare doll. <sighs> I love a happy ending, don't you? <laughs> Ha <laughs> ha
The frog doesn't wash his feet. He thinks that they smell so sweet. He lives in a big lagoon with smelly feet that don't smell sweet. The frog doesn't wash his feet. He thinks that they smell so sweet. He lives in a big lagoon with smelly feet that don't smell sweet. What stinky feet! My final question is a weird one. What? What would you do if you had a friend, a podcaster friend, who had a strange foot fetish? Um. <laughs> giving you me. the side eye. It's not me. Um. Well. I would. Tell that person that I would take the odor readers out of my shoes so they would not go near my feet. <laughs> okay. Okay. And we'll we'll I'm setting up for a uh, reading with Stella. One of my think about the people that I hang out with most. One of them. One of them. Is it for Tony? <laughs> gonna say okay. but the way you said that was pretty hilarious it was either him or Don I know that's it's one of the two